a perfect card a week ago and a confusing card. Allen versus Craig for Craig Allen. We got a lot to talk about. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. And just like that, we are back and we are getting excited for UFC Fight Night. Allen versus Craig. As always, one half your hosting duo, Matt, at Craig Allen FNP. And that's where it gets confusing. This is just like back when I was in high school and with all my baseball buddies, they thought it was the funniest thing in the world. I was just about to ask that this. a 2021 World Series champion, a 2013 All-Star, and by 2016, he was out of the league. Yes, that's first baseman. Alan Craig, they all thought that was the funniest thing. And David Makem probably never wow. thought he would get a shout out on this channel, but he's getting one right now. He carried that joke for years. But Matt, when we do have a look at this card, I mean, overall, 14 total fights. There's four ranked fighters. There's 17 Dana White's Contender Series veterans. As I said, you went the perfect 12-0 last weekend. You get to carry the trophy around with you for a week. I know you're feeling good about that one, but... It was when a we, great card to watch, it, though. Aside from the picks, that was one of the better UFC cards we've had in recent memory. It was, and I'm glad that you said that because we have two titles. I mean, you kind of consider it changing hands, but Tom Aspinall gets oh the belt. Oh, my goodness. Interim champion. He takes the biggest shots from Sergei Pavlovich. He lands them back. And then, of course, Alex Pereira beating Yuri Prohoshka. Was it an early stoppage? It doesn't matter. Yuri was said he was out. It was a great fight. That's what you're going to say when you're a true samurai no, warrior. You're not, but when we look at this card, 14 total fights and everything that I had said before, I, I teased it a little bit to end last week. I said, I've got an opener for the ages. So people in New Brunswick, people in our town of Fredericton, New Brunswick, I think they're going to appreciate this. Back in 2016, our census for the city, just the city, 59,405 people, Matt. This card is just like the city of Fredericton. You might say, why? I don't know. We even know where Fredericton is. River going through the middle of it. We're, we're an hour east of, uh, of Maine. We're three hours where we're at right now. South of Quebec, if we're talking in reference to where the Maritimes are, where Fredericton, New Brunswick is. Matt, on the north side of Fredericton, you have New England Pizza, Tony Pepperoni, Giselle's, Domino's, Papa England John's. Today. Pizza Twice, Pizza Hut, Greco, Pizza Delight, Pepper Creek Pizza, Pizza Pizza, Little Caesars, and Fatty's it's Pizza. A saturated market, some might say. F***ing right. There's f***ing 13 f***ing pizza joints on the north side of Fredericton. 59,000 people in this f***ing city. And on the north side, which is the least populated side of the city, 13 pizza joints. The UFC is giving you another f***ing Apex card with 28 fighters on this card it's absolutely just the most saturated fight card you're gonna find and i've one never been mad about pizza that because for the rest of the year you got to fill these cards we got four left and listen am i excited ufc 296 I retirement countdown timer but when you do look at this one overall i know we can get excited about some of the debuting fighters some of the fighters who it's their second time out if you consider that fighters with one or less ufc fights on their belt the aaron Rodgers. There's nine of them on this card. So it very much is a, a, a saturated, it's worth throwing everything we got in terms of numbers at this one. It might not be the greatest card ever, but there's still some fights out here that I am excited for, at least in terms of I think they're going to be exciting fights when they happen. Again, you might not project the highest ceiling on either fighter, but the matchup of those two guys against each other, I think will result in a fun fight. Like, Christian Duncan is in an absolutely insane fight this weekend. I know you're excited for it. I know I am. Like, there are some matchups on this card that you can easily get excited for. There are some matchups you can get excited for. Again, Cesar Almeida going to be making that UFC debut against Christian Leroy Duncan. Almeida of... 
one and two Alex Pereira fame over in kickboxing. The second fight for him, it went so bad. But if you want to check him out, Matt, again, 14 total fights on this card. If anything is added, thrown out during the week, you can always find us here at Fight Night Picks on YouTube. Make sure you toss a like and comment with your picks throughout the week because we're just going to be releasing the full card video for you unless things change. We have to add a fight as we did last week with Ron Bejki who beat the brakes off of Roosevelt Roberts. It was Groundhog Day for Roberts. Matt, we have a lot to talk about. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. From squaring off against the King of Lions to now the Lion, Jekka Saragi, looking to do his best jungle book out this one. And go Scar. Matt, Jack Saragi out of Indonesia looking for that first UFC win. He's going to be taking on the Lion, Lucas Alexander, a guy who represents Fusion XL. One of the bigger gyms that's out there. I mean, you see him over there with Philly Fresh, Phil Rowe, and of course, the greatest. I mean, Lyoto Machida training there as well. Hadolfo Vieira. But for Lucas Alexander, got his first UFC win his last time out. The retiring Steven Ocho Peterson. Where were you when Steven Peterson announced retirement? I was sitting in this office watching that fight. Peterson complained to his corner between rounds that he'd broken one of his hands. Lucas Alexander ends up dropping him as the fight goes along. It was a great win for Alexander, who's shown a big progression since we saw him on the regional scene. Alexander fought a paltry level of competition on his way up. He got a win over 8-5 and five Jacob Kilburn. He was just kicking, kicking, kicking to the bread basket. And finally, Jacob did bring his hand down, broke his arm in trying to block one of those kicks. Alexander in the first Anthony Pettis FC main event in that one. He gets a short notice call against, listen, Spider-Man meme. We do it all the time because there's so many fighters in the UFC, but he gets that short notice call on a week's notice to take on Joe Anderson Brito. Does not win that fight. Nobody expected him to. And Alexander gets the win there against Ocho Peterson. So now he gets to move it forward to take on Saragi. And when you look at a guy like Lucas Alexander, he does have a little bit of jiu-jitsu in his back pocket. His takedown defense isn't all that good. But he is a Muay Thai artist. He's just got a really weird stance for a Muay Thai artist going back and watching his fights today to get ready for this one. And that's the weird thing about Alexander. He's a fighter who, when you bring up the kicks, his kicks are phenomenal. All three levels. Exactly. He throws an insane variety, can do it from both sides, all three levels, like you mentioned. And the thing that I do like about Alexander is I seem to rag on Dan Hooker every time I bring up this point, and you know what I'm going to say. It's We see a lot of guys who kick heavy in the first round, right? But as their cardio dwindles, they aren't as kick heavy as the fight continues. Alexander, at least against Peterson, showed he can still kick throughout that matchup and I did like the volume that we saw in that fight but the one concerning thing about Alexander's style that at least concerns me in a matchup like this and especially when he does start to face more grappling heavy fighters is does he almost rely too much on the kicks? I always remember Chael Sonnen saying this about Michael Bisping. It's, hey, his jab's great, but everything is set up from the jab. So if you can just eliminate that one part of his game, it doesn't help really set the other dominoes in place. And if Jekka is able to get on the inside and maybe not use his wrestling as much to destroy that distance, but he has absurd power when he is able to plant his feet in the pocket. And if he can make Alexander uncomfortable in some of those striking ranges, I don't know if Lucas is going to be uh, at least comfortable striking on the back foot at some of those ranges 
changes because Alexander's kicks are phenomenal. I just wonder that does he almost rely on them a little bit well, too much? And I thought about including it in this video because sometimes I'll throw out like instead of the, the graphic that you see in front of you, I'll throw out a video from somebody's Instagram. We get to see them training. I think last week I did it with Kyung Ho Gong before his fight with Castaneda. And I thought about Lucas Alexander throwing one in because this just made me think of it. You watch him striking and he's working his boxing with his coach, but his legs are really wide apart. He kind of keeps his head tucked back. It's a lot of arm punches in combination. You saw it in short succession, left hook, right hook, Steven Peterson, Saka Potatoes. And again, all three judges, 30-27, did the broken hand play into it? I'm sure that Probably it did. Right. But when you focus on a guy like Jekka Saragi, usually when we throw a transition in here, I'm, I'm throwing the overlay on. I'm trying to confuse you, but maybe we're wearing different clothes. I really do want to throw it back to that Saragi intro video to when he was taking on Anshul Jubilee finals of the road to UFC. They took place in the UFC's apex and you really hammered home one of the mentions in this is Saragi moving now down from 155 to 145. So let's throw it to that clip. If you look at it for Saragi, he gets a couple of big-time wins over on Road to UFC. He beats Poan Man, a man out of India. And in that fight, absolutely decimates him with a spinning awesome. back fist. And Poan Man was a guy that fought at welterweight and then dropped down to lightweight for the tournament. So a bigger fighter than Saragi, which we'll say in about every single one of Saragi's fights. He's only 5'8". Not a big lightweight at all, yeah. His big win over uh, one Bin Key. Straight right, knocks him out in that one too. So two really nice knockout wins for Saragi. But if you consider it, yeah, even going back and looking at his fights on the regional scene, he typically weighs in around 153. So he's not a giant... He's going to be a featherweight in the UFC. Not to cut you off, yeah. but this is going to be one of those cases where I think the opportunity dictated his weight class more yeah, than where he's going to be. Because his, his whole career has been lightweight. I understand. But with, there's fighters who outside the UFC, they can get away with fighting other guys who don't cut a tremendous amount of weight. Then they get to the UFC, realize everybody's cutting a tremendous amount of weight then they have to make the change because Saragi isn't built like a Michael Chandler like Chandler's a guy who's about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, you know not going to tower over a lot of lightweights but you look at him and you understand how he fits into the division. Very stocky figure. Saragi is going to bring in into those issues uh, with the physicality of some of those other lightweight contenders. But if you consider for Jekka Saragi representing Indonesia even before the fight that he had against Poan Man. He lost two family members. Like, they just passed away very quickly before that one. His fight against Wing Bin Key, he looked really good in that one. He gets that uh, knockout win. So I love the power that he has. Obviously, we know that only one of his 15 fights has gone to decision. That was a fight earlier on in 2022. He hasn't lost a fight since 2020. He didn't fight the greatest level of competition on the regional scene either. But what I've seen out of both of these guys and what I've seen out of a guy, the former one pride MMA lightweight champion, and that is uh, Jekka Saragi, I'd say his wildness can definitely translate in a fight like this. And it's obviously won him all of these fights because he is so well-rounded. And again, he is at a height disadvantage in the majority of his fights, being the size that he is. But he can usually overcome that by having the power that he has, mixing up his strikes to all three levels, and then really kind of blending in his own grappling. And in a fight like this, I could see him having success there as well. So yeah, Saragi being one of those kind of 151 to 153 type of lightweights, now we see him moving down to 145. So he's not really going to look like the guy in that picture, but he will look like a guy that's going to give up height and reach, especially in this division in this as division, well. Though. Alexander's a big guy for 155. Saragi should hopefully kind of mold himself well into this division. And if I could make a comparison, Jekka Saragi, he's got way better Muay Thai just purely than a guy like Jeremy Stevens. He's a lot more creative than Jeremy Stevens, 
but he throws a ton of power when he's in tight. He's got a big right hand. But again, Saragi's one of those guys, spinning wheel kick. He saw the spinning back fist knockout that he had when he was competing with Road to UFC. And if you go back and watch him fight when he was at the One Pride uh, MMA Championships, where he was almost like a Mateo Sharambeski. Every fight seemed to be a title fight, and he was beating a lot of scrubs on the way up. But Saragi somehow ends up with this UFC uh, short notice call. I mean, Sadegui was supposed to be fighting Jesse Butler this weekend. Lucas Alexander was supposed to take a fight. Uh, not this weekend, last but it was him, last yeah. weekend. He, Alexander was supposed to take on David Onama. So that would have been a fun fight. Too. It's an odd switch up because for Sadegui against Jesse Butler, I think Sadegui would have won that fight. But unfortunately, I don't think the highest of Jesse Butler. For Lucas Alexander against David Onama... I don't know. I think Onama probably would have won that fight, but I think it would have been, been really, good really competitive. So again, you go down through this one. Saragi now training out of the States, not out of Indonesia, training at MMA, what is it? MMA Fight Academy in California, where there's a lot of Cage Warriors fighters that train there for the Cage Warriors USA fights. And his manager's Graham Boylan, but he never fought with Cage Warriors. So it's a really weird dynamic for Jekka Saragi coming into this match. You kind of alluded to it, but the one thing that really worries me about Jekka, especially when he fights guys who are more pinpoint strikers, is those big actions do leave him open for guys to land clean counter shots down the middle. And yes, the power shots are great when they do land. He's got a good chin. He does have a good chin, but how do we know that? He gets hit a lot in some of these matchups. So again, it does come down to some of the bigger actions of Jekka. And if Alexander can keep some of that range with the kicks because I do think Alexander's probably the more likely to get a decision win in here if he can use the kicks to at least halt the movement of Saragi and not let him land some of those power shots I don't know how important wrestling is going to be for either guy in this matchup, to be honest. I do expect both guys to probably compete on the feet more than anything, but I do think range is going to be the most important thing completely. Whoever's close, if Jekka can get close, he's probably going to be winning a lot of those moments because his power is something you do have to watch for, and I do think it's going to make you fight in a different way once you get touched up. That right hand against Wanbin Ki, like, oh my gosh, it sounded like a baseball bat. And if you look at it for Saragi, he was a national champion in Wushu Sanda in his native Indonesia. You can see that with a lot of the spins. It kind of reminds me you a little bit, to a lesser extent, of Muslim Salikov. And with Lucas Alexander, this is a guy that on his UFC bio, they say had roughly 100 kickboxing and Muay Thai fights as an amateur, That's and he was 4-1 and one as a pro kickboxer. Maybe he looked up to Cesar Almeida, who's also on this card. Matt, when it does come down to it, I mean, Sadegi was favored to beat Jubilee. He got just rope burned on the ground. I mean, Matt burned, if you will. Saragi loses that matchup. We have a look at the top all votes in this one. Surprise to us there to you. I'm going to say over under 67.5% for the man who has UFC win, Lucas Alexander. I think they're going to be over. I think they're going to be over. They're way wow, over. Not that high. 100 total votes on the nose. 83% going with Alexander. 64% by decision for the 17% that have Saragi. 47% by knockout. I thought Saragi was going to beat Jubilee with the striking. Mike Breeden could do it, so apparently anyone could do it. But Matt, who's the pick in this matchup here? I do like Alexander in this matchup. Again, I think beating Ocho, even though he didn't announce his retirement after that fight, that's still a decent win. Before that fight, he said he was going to retire. But that's still a good win to have on your resume, right? Like, that's a very durable fighter who, like you had mentioned, broke his hand in the fight and still was able to fight through that and a knockdown. So I do like Alexander for the lasting power. But again, I just worry about the kicking range. And if you can eliminate that, does it ruin a lot of the other parts of his game it's something i'm gonna be watching for well and i said in my notes like i have it gobs of power for jekka saragi and you for see sure. it 
in these fights. He's one of the more exciting guys that you're going to watch out there. I like the four of four takedowns defended against Ocho Peterson for Lucas Alexander. Can't really say the same thing about poor Chase Hooper who's up at the top of this card when he was taking on Peterson. But Alexander kept a good pace through three rounds. I continued to learn. I, I Alexander's one of those fighters. It seems like now every week I say this. Wasn't sold on this guy coming into the UFC. But that last fight, uh, I guess the recency bias of it all, it's got me on him in this matchup. So I both of your baby thinks people can't change. Going with Lucas Alexander, Ciccolini's Chicken Spaghetti, Matt. A big-time matchup. We have 14 total fights on this card, and you can only find them here in the full card videos. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. Dynamic flyweight set to meet in the small confines of the UFC's apex. We have the former LFA flyweight champ, Energy Charles Johnson, competing in his fifth UFC fight inside of 12 months. He's going to be welcoming Macapa Rafael Estevam. Matt, I'm going to make some Macapa references this week. And listen, John Teixeira, he's got to get it. But when it does come down to this matchup, a big-time opportunity for Estevam, who was originally supposed to be competing earlier on this year against Jalgesh Magulov, a fighter that Charles Johnson knows all too well, picking up a chintzy decision win over him earlier on in his UFC career. And I say earlier on, it's been a short but a very memorable run been. for Charles Johnson. You know exactly what you're going to get in his matchups. It's going to be a lot of wrestling, a lot of scrambling that he does not initiate, and then he's going to try and work his boxing and his kicks. And that was the funny thing about Johnson coming into the UFC. Everybody said, this guy's a boxer. And then you look, and he was 1-5-4 and four as a pro boxer. But ultimately, it has played out. In 2019, he earns a Tiger Muay Thai scholarship. He's there the same year that Mike Davis, yes, Beast Boy, earned a scholarship from the renowned gym. And so for Charles Johnson, he, listen, student of the game. I think that's what we have to say, right? This is a guy that he's out of St. Louis, Missouri. He wrestled when he was, or sorry, didn't wrestle when he was in college. Steeplechase when he was in college. And he did that to great effect. If every fight was a five-round fight, Charles Johnson would win them. Listen, he's like an old-school gladiator. All five of his losses are by decision. And all five of those decision losses were not in title fights. They are all in three-round fights. I think gladiators went to the death quite famously, not to the decision, but okay. Exactly. Charles Johnson would just fight until you tuck her out, and then that's it. Charles Johnson's a winner. But if you do look at it for Johnson, since his last loss, a really long layoff, he went over to Europe. He trained with Redline, or Redline Training Center with Akira Khorasani. A lot of people know that gym. That's UFC fame. A lot of big fighters have fought out of that gym. But he's also spent time in primed combat. And I'll throw a picture up there of that one too. That's Gray Maynard's new gym. So listen, UFC fans, they love Gray Maynard. Awesome to see that there. Listen to an interview that Charles Johnson did with James Lynch. And uh, listen, I mean, if you do consider it, he said... Another fight where uh, I was a little over aggressive his last time out against Cody Durden. All three judges, 30-27 the last time out there. The Apex smaller, and he's not a big fan of fighting at the Apex, but he's back out here again. And he doesn't like to fight contender series guys or guys in the first time out, but he gets that this time. So for Charles Johnson, the DAC is stacked. The DAC. Dak Prescott. The deck is stacked against yeah. him in this one, and uh, he's looking to kind of dig himself out of a two-fight skid. 
The thing is Johnson, or about Johnson is, you bring it up, everybody knows what he does well and what he doesn't do well at this stage of his career. The volume and the boxing are quite promising when he is really able to incorporate them with his range because he's one of those fighters who when he does use his body type to his advantage, he can be a phenomenal fighter with that. It's almost in that Neil Magny type of frame, right? It's when I do use my range, I'm a difficult guy to beat, but the wrestling, not even the wrestling defense, just the wrestling can really disrupt his own offense. And that's what I always worry about with Charles Johnson. He has good power, but not great power. He has really good volume but if you are a wrestler that can take him down for long bouts of time and he can't land you know multiple shots up against the cage to really turn the tide back in his favor favor I do worry about how Johnson is going to go out there and start getting wins against people who are going to go for a lot of these takedowns and for Estevam is he going to go for a lot of the traditional single and double leg takedowns of some of the past opponents of Johnson maybe not he is more of like upper body throws he likes to go for trip takedowns from the clinch as well so maybe Johnson will have more success defending those because he is such a rangy striker but I just worry about the whole disruptiveness of Johnson's game. Even if he is able to defend the takedowns, will he be able to throw enough offense afterwards to then get back into it? We had a lot to say about Estevam earlier on this spring, and this this guy, like, he is a very interesting he is. He's taking this fight, and he gets halfway to Estevam out of Novo Uniao. And if you know Estevam, I mean, he's one of those guys, and I likened him last week on Question Mark Kicks to Fernando Padilla because Estevam started off when he was 18. And if you go back and you watch the fights when he's 18, 19 years old to the guy that you see right now, there's similarities for sure. But just like Padilla, a giant leap forward in the skills. Estevam, when he first started out, would just run across the cage, brawl. He'd go for double leg takedowns, he didn't pick use you his up, skills. slam you down. No, he used his brawn. Exactly. And he used his strength, and he used, and I'm going to bring it out right now. He used his moxie. The kid's got moxie, and that's all that he used. So for Rafael Estevam to go from what he was to what he is right now, he still goes for big, powerful takedowns. He still goes for big, powerful strikes. He had some long layoffs. He was Chuto Brazil. I know if you go on Facebook, there were some pictures of him with the belt, but when you look at it, they weren't really five-round fights. So it was kind of weird there. He fights, he fights with the LFA on a card where you had those crazy bomb from brothers going out there and doing their thing. He beats Felipe Estevez, and then he beats Joel Elias over on Contender Series. And in that fight against Elias... I mean, after a while, Elias kind of looked like uh, Carl Havoc. He didn't even want to be around anymore. He didn't. Wait, are That's you talking the hand about in the suit? Yeah, in the suit. I'm talking about... Okay, here's the weird thing about Estevam, and that was what I want to talk about too. Earlier on in his career, he just relied on his athleticism, even though he is a tremendously skilled fighter. And as he was able to progress throughout his career, you are able to see the skills pop out a lot more. And well, like you said, does he still go for these big takedowns? Yes, he does. And I'll be interested to see how much sort of those big athletic moves are going to work. Estevam, when you do look at it, Brazilian Shitsu Black Belt trains at a Nova Uniao, and you go over to his Instagram, and he's training with Dos Anjos. He's training with uh, my guy, Leo Santos, who recently was retired. Also, Jose Aldo, some of the boys over there at Novo Nyao. So you know the sparring's probably going to be hard. You know Dede Pedernares is going to be in his corner, and he was with the LFA, and you look at it over on Contender Series, that big win over Joao Elias, but the thing that I found interesting, I looked at it, and if you're trying to find tape on Mr. Rafael, it's either Rafael Hamosh, Rafael Esteban, Rafael Esteban, or Rafael Macapa, and I thought, Macapa? Macapa? So I looked it up. There's only two Macapas that have ever fought in the UFC. Rafael Macapa, and you know the other one because he only goes by the nickname, John Teixeira, John Macapa, 
And they train together, and they're from the same region in Brazil. So pretty cool stuff there. I've seen John early on those like first couple of fights that Estevam had as a pro. John Teixeira was in his corner, so I thought that was pretty cool right there. But again, when I was writing down some of these notes, it's long, looping shots to close the distance. Big action kicks. We see a lot of finishes for Estevam oh, through yeah. this. Seven of his 11 wins are by finish, three of them by submission. But again, the, the jiu-jitsu isn't necessarily accentuated because of the big action striking. So when you have a look at a guy like Estevam, there's openings there for sure. So with Estevam, you go back through, you watch all of his fights. He's really powerful. He's really athletic. He throws with a lot of power. All of his takedowns are with power. And as fights go on, what's he going to look like? Because I don't know. He, again, he was supposed to fight Juma Gulov earlier on this year. Weight management issues. The reason why that fight was Shuma thrown Gulov out. might not have a great record, but he's still a great test for anybody. Like, you know a lot more about the opponent after that fight's done. Zhaga Shumagulov gets around. But when it does come down to this matchup, Matt, I mean, for Charles Johnson, he's never lost to a guy like Rafael Esteban. I think True. that was my biggest takeaway when I was going back and watching the Johnson fights, going back and watching the Esteban fights. You look at Johnson in the UFC. couple of debuts, Makayev Johnson. Makayev wins out with grappling. You look at, again, another loss that's out there, and you consider it... Ode Osborne, split decision loss. It was a close fight. Johnson dealing with the aftermath, the remnants of a broken hand. He had a sinus infection earlier on this year that really did hamper him. It was a close fight. Majority had scored that one for Osborne. And then the fight against Cody Durden, he just wasn't able to get going whatsoever. So eager to see what we get out of Johnson. And I got to give shouts where they're due. It was calf kick. Uh, sports was the interview that I had listened to. Johnson getting ready for this one, talking about the birth of his first child daughter excited about that stuff and getting ready for this one at a few different gyms so for johnson comes into this one on a two-fight skid estevam undefeated and we'll talk about estevam in the caesar almeida fight but you don't didn't think there was going to be a connection there but there is matt we have a look at the topology vote surprised us there to you i'm gonna say over under 72 and a half percent estevam in this one i think he's gonna have a ridiculous favor of them oh. uh 629 total votes 83 percent estevam 74 percent by decision for the 17 percent that have johnson 76 percent by decision uh, who do you have in the matchup I have Estevan, but I'm really surprised to see the topology votes go that way, to be completely honest with you. I thought he'd be the favorite, but not by that much. I do think he's just going to be able to disrupt some of that rhythm of Johnson. We saw Durden do that to great effect. Now, I don't think Estevan's as good of a pure wrestler as Durden. He, again, like I said, is more traditional versus trip takedowns. But Estevan, and you bring it up, everything he does, he really does put all of his power into it. So... I'm concerned about him as the fight goes on, but I, I'm going to pick him in this Esteban one. opened a plus 110. He's a minus 120 right now, so the odds have shifted toward es towards Esteban. I like Charles Johnson in this fight. I think, again, the steadiness is just going to keep him in the minds of the judges. But again, big moments from a guy like Esteban, exactly. especially with some of his really big shots. If he's able to go out there and just push a pace against Charles Johnson. Johnson's good at striking off the back foot. He's good at striking side to side when he's moving away. But that really doesn't leave a good memory in the minds of the judges. So we are split on this one. I'm going with Charles Johnson here, Matt. You're going with Rafael Estevam in the UFC debut. Really eager to see what the fans saw when they watched the tape on this one. So let us know what you have down below in the comments section. Some big time fights on this card. The next one, a clash of styles. Nicholas Mata taking on Trey Ogden. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it.
Battle of big time lightweight nicknames. We have Marathon MMA, Samurai Ghost, Trey Ogden taking on Iron Nicholas Mota. And when we look at a matchup like this, Matt, I mean, it really is technique versus technique. And it's a little bit of a clash of styles because if you look at it, Nicholas Mota goes out there, he throws a tidy one two, mixes in a little bit of a left hook with that jab to kind of confuse opponents. And then he just unleashes a hellish overhand right. And that is the calling card of Mota. And if you look at it, not a lot of his fights go into a decision. For better, for worse. And he's like seen that for him inside of the UFC. Goes in as a big favorite against Jim Miller in a debut. Gets outstruck, gets knocked out. Goes in there against Cameron Van Camp. The guy who is everything that Trey Ogden isn't and vice versa. White belt gang was the tattoo. He got promptly knocked out. When you look at Moda's last win, he's out there against Manuel Torres, who was the favorite. Moda's having a lot of success for the first half of the round. He gets backed up. He in tight drops his hands and Manuel Torres lands a left elbow from H-E double hockey sticks. I think I've already said it before. But if I haven't, we'll go with that reference. Mota drops. He slumped over. He eats one hammer fist for his trouble. And that's it. So Mota now gets to take on Trey Ogden. And I had mentioned earlier, and there's a reason why I made the mistake. I listened to a lot of interviews for this fight card. And I watched a lot of fight tapes. Something that you have to do when a lot of fighters are new. And there's 14 GD fights. But when it comes to Trey Ogden, he did an interview with Combat Sports UK and James Lynch. And I thought before I even watched the interview, I wrote here and I put a bunch of stars next to it. Feels like loser goes home here. Both are one and two in the UFC and they're going into their fourth fight. First thing Trey Ogden talks about, uh, yeah, this is the last fight on my UFC contract. He also said, and I quote, that, well, James Lynch says they both have the same management company which raises at a bit of an eyebrow. And Trey Ogden says, they they said Nicholas said he needs more time because of his last fight, like the concussions or whatever. Yeah, so they were going to try and book this one earlier on this year. They pushed it later on because of how bad Moda's uh, knockout was. He said that full-time, his gym is, you know, his, his passion. It's his job. So he's got to handle the books for Marathon MMA. He really is the Jackie Moon of MMA. He's a player-owner coach. Of course, he's got a big stable there. Garrett Armfield, you also saw a win out of him, but not just him, Mike Breeden, as well as Miles Johns recently. So Trey Ogden, you're the coach. You got to get the win. And now he's coming into this one. It really is about tuning up the intensity, getting ready for this one, tuning up the volume in his fight camp. But year-round, he's competing in not just jiu-jitsu tournaments, but training everybody at the gym. And when you look at Ogden, his record and his fights, we kind of talked about him coming into the UFC, gets that win over J.J. Okanovich on a looking-for-a-fight Fury card. And listen, Dana White never signs 32-year-olds. Guess what? He signed a 35-year-old to be on this card. But Trey Ogden's shown that not just is he that submission specialist that you saw in the regional scene, he really is a nice volume striker when it comes to his boxing, and it can really kind of act like a bit of a turning back of the timepiece. You can't do that with an Apple Watch, but turn back the timepiece like we saw against Daniel Zellhuber, but on the flip side, couldn't do it at all his last time out against Ignacio Bahamonde. And that's the thing about Ogden. I always, in my mind's eye, it was, hey, he is much more grapple first over strike. And I still think he's more directed towards that, right? The striking helps open up the grappling. But that's the best version of Ogden. It's when he is able to use the jab, throw in combination a bit, and be in his opponent's face. But this is a weird fight for that. Because if he is comfortable to stand in the pocket and walk into the punches of Mata... 
It might be a really early night for him, but the strange thing that I do have with this fight is the striking defense of Mata is just something that's always concerned me. And it's the, one of those aim big, miss big kind of styles. And if Ogden is able to use his forward pressure to eliminate some of that space, it's not going to give Mata the space to really lunge forward and use that shot to the fullest of its extensions. And if Ogden is able to get down, get on top, and really start to wear down on Nicholas Mata as this fight continues, it's just going to sap that power bar even more. I'm rarely this one-sided early on in one of these videos, but you guys can probably tell where I'm going with this. It's just, it's an odd fight because I think Mata's really going to have to use his timing well and catch him at very specific ranges. It's that fine Goldilocks zone, right? Can't be too far away, can't be too close in. He's going to really be able to time Ogden and decipher when is he going to go for that takedown and when is he striking to strike? Because I think when Ogden's striking to strike, his volume's good, but he will stay in that pocket for an extra second. And if Mata can hit him, especially consistently, I'm not sure if Ogden's going to be as willing of a participant in some of those striking exchanges. And Ogden's a little strange too, because as good as the volume is, like it, we're just throwing basic well, boxing the last fight too. combinations. And I don't mean it as a negative, but Ogden stands really straight, really tall, and really keeps his hands high. His jab's high. nice though. And he does have a speedy jab, but if you do consider it in a fight like this, Mata, the other big action that he will throw, it's that big head kick. And you saw that against Glyco Franz, who ended up winning the season of the Ultimate Fighter. Mata lands it, Mata drops Franza, and then Franza submits him. And if you go back and you watch Mata's fights on the come up, he can dust guys. But at the same time, his striking defense leaves a lot to be desired. And he's one of those big load up type of guys to where there's a lot of wasted movement almost to where he's got to try and time things. And if you can time Mata on the half beat, Jim Miller did it. Manuel Torres was able to do it. A lot of these higher level strikers can do it. Overall in this one though, again, Ogden 1-1 one one at the UFC's Apex. Nicholas Mata, Contender Series UFC, 2-2 two two at the Apex. Mata looking for his first win since Van Camp. Before that, a Joseph Lowry win for Trey Ogden's last win a little over a year ago against Daniel Zellhuber. But I mean, overall, again, Nicholas Mata is one of those guys. He can struggle a little bit on the mat. It's a little weird because, I mean, he was in the corner of Cesar Almeida, who's on this card. So you saw that on Contender Series not that long ago. But Mata used to be a guy that repped Nova Uniao when he was on the season of The Ultimate Fighter, when he was early on in his career, moved things to Vegas. He's been out of Extreme Tour for a really long time. Where's Trey Ogden again? It used to be that branch of glory. Now it is full-on marathon MMA. We have a look at this matchup, Matt. I mean, I don't know where the odds are going to be in this one. Mata is slightly favored. Open minus 150, still about there. Look at the top algae vote. Surprise to us, they are to you. I'm going to say over, under. I know Mata's favored, but I feel like it's going to be 60% over under Trey Ogden. I'll say over. I'm going to say over. It's slightly over, so 657 total votes. 64% have Ogden win, 80% by decision. For the 36% that have Mota, 55% uh, by decision. Only 36% have him to win by knockout. For Trey Ogden, 16-6. and six. Out of those six losses, he's lost three by submission and three by decision. So he's never been knocked out. That's how Nicholas Moda gets wins, gets paid, Matt, the label that pays me. But when you do look at this one, I mean, it might seem weird because we always get surprised when the fan vote is totally different than what the odds are. But I didn't set it up that way and it didn't surprise me at all. No, and I kind one. of agree with them. That's the thing. Yeah. I just think the lasting power of Ogden is going to be really important in this matchup. And especially if the takedown is available, right? On the feet, I think it can match some of what Mata does. I'm going to be worried the whole entire time if he gets <laughs> knocked out. But I do think he can match some of what Mata does on the feet. But on the mat, I do think there's quite a separation, especially if Ogden's able to get that top spot. So I do like Trey Ogden in this matchup as the slight underdog. I like Ogden too. Uh, when I was getting ready for this one, it felt very much like a Louis Smolka fight. The butthole, it's going to be puckered. I wow. said it really weird, but it will be. 
because of the power that Mana has. But as the first round goes into the second round, you, you kind of lessen it a little bit more, a little bit more. So I'm eager to see what we get out of Trey Ogden in this one. I picked him to beat Ignacio Bahamondas the last time out. He got completely outclassed. So I'm eager for this one. Let us know down below in the comment section who you have. Both of us going with the Samurai Ghost in the matchup. Ooh. Matt, there's 14 fights in this a card. There's a lot to talk about. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get, get into it. it. Like the famous 80s Canadian band Trooper once said, just the three dressed up as a nine. Coming up this weekend, Matt, we have Lucia Puzilova. my time. Second stint in the UFC. She was forced out in 2020, went five and one between 2020 and 2022 over with octagon came back into the ufc gets a wild win over Wu Yanan, but her last time out one of the most controversial decision calls of this year putilova versus edwards a fight for the ages putilova coming into this one looking to get a win against matt eileen perez who got her first ufc winner last time out now why would i reference an old song by one of our collective favorite bands hard, that's why. growing up as children. Matt, it's because Eileen Perez, I mean, a three dressed up as a nine. She comes into the UFC. She looks like an absolute world beater with Samurai Fight Team or Samurai Fight House down in the regional scene in her native Argentina. Wins the belt over there. Loses the belt because of illegal knees against Tamaris Vidal. She comes back a storm and she goes in there against Stephanie Edgar and a lot of people thought that Eileen Perez was a great grappler and a great striker. And she got completely taken to town and to task by Stephanie Edgar. So Perez her last time out well, again, why would you say three dress up as a nine? She looked so good outside of the UFC. She looked awful in the debut. And then her last time out, she takes on six and five Ashley Evan Smith, who hadn't won a fight in about four years. And she goes out there and predictably did what you thought that Eileen Perez would do. She was able to land a bevy of takedowns. She went 10 of 15 on takedown attempts, had 11 minutes and 36 seconds of control time. But where it's deceiving, and the reason I reference the song is because... Perez is fighting somebody that's not a ground fighter at all in Ashley Evans-Smith, a boxer, and she's able to beat her, and it didn't really prove all that much. For Pudzilova, same can be said. I mean, when she was in the UFC in the first round, it was a lot of straight shots down the middle, but if you could get her behind the black line, if you could grapple with her, Pudzilova was like a fish out of water. With Octagon, with the camp change that SBG Ireland, she's been able to prove that she has been improving on a lot of these skills, and we've seen that in these two UFC fights let alone the fights with Octagon. And the big thing for Pudzilova, training with not only the big fighters at SBG, but also Valentina Skatizzi, who they brought in, who's going to be taking on Dakota Ditchdeva. Now, Skatizzi, 2-1, Ditchdeva, 9-0 for the PFL European Championship in December. Pudzilova earned the Irish ADCC Open Championship over there, so she gets the belt. The other women get medals. You get a belt. You're you're very special. The British Bulldog's my favorite European champion of all time. <laughs> but also for Pudzilova, I mean, again, some big things in camp. She also went down to Thailand for this camp, and she was training with one championship champ. Brandon LeBlanc's going to love this. Another shout to friends. But Chingus uh, Alazov, so a huge champion over there with the Muay Thai. So for Pudzilova, giant champ camps. For Eileen Perez, it was Argentina. Then it was over to MMA Masters. She gets a win. MMA Masters no more. She's at the goat shed training with Jillian Roberts of the world, but also training, and I'll throw the picture up there, with Asim Zaidi, who is the head guy over there at goat shed. His handle on Instagram, Matt, 
President.awesome. Change it. Please change That's it. That's so, such a, I made my gamer tag when I was in grade six and I still have an Xbox. President.awesome. Eileen Perez out of a new gym for this one. I like it puts a little, a little bit to a Marcia Casey, right? And I feel like that's maybe not exactly with the power and everything, but you do get where I'm going. It was very strike heavy at first, but we have seen the evolution in their game to where they are rounding out the other aspect. Now, with Lucia Puzzlova, like the 2004 stable that included Dave Batista, Randy Orton, Ric Flair, and Triple H... Evolution is a mystery, and that's kind of a bit about Lucia Puzzalova. And it has been, but the one part about her game that I don't think she has either a lot of offense from, and even defensively we have seen her struggle, has been flat on her back. She can get held down and out-muscled in some of those positions. And I understand what you're saying about how Island Perez, it might be one of those buy-high situations because of how good she looked her last time out, but I do still think that those offensive takedowns are something she could take from the last fight and have success with them in this matchup. I do think Puzzalova is probably going to have the higher volume in this matchup, Especially if they are able to be on the feet. And I can't believe I'm making another crazy reference, but uh, again, I'll connect the dots. She did strike a little bit like Nazim Sadikov. Now, remember what we said about Sadikov? What was the great thing about him? And he was in one of the great preliminary fights you will ever see this past weekend on the pay per view. That was a wild fight. It's like Slava. the Bob Backlund reference going to a draw with Jesse Ventura, as said by Will Sasso. If you look at that fight, as far as draws go, that was a wild one. Oh, it was, yeah, it was amazing. But what do we really like about Sadikov? He can strike from both stances and he can change stances while he's throwing. Puzzalova, at least the early goings of her career, was a good high volume striker who could throw from both sides. Now, she didn't have the power of a guy like Sadikov, but again, just in the way that she used her footwork, I think that fighter would have a better chance of winning than this more grapple heavy type of fighter. Because if she does go to try to wrestle with Eileen Perez, I think she might struggle in some of the scrambles after the initial takedown attack and that's going to get her into some poor positions as well. And I just think it's going to be a lot of Puzzalova on her back with Perez trying to work her grappling in that top spot. I think the move down to Thailand, it's going to accentuate a little bit of the skills of Puzzalova again. She's gone into the grappling quite heavily since she was out of the UFC. That fight against Jocelyn Edwards, I'll throw it up there, Matt. I get crucified, and I'm going to use that word. I got crucified over there on Twitter when I threw out the tweet and I scored that 129-28 for Edwards. Everybody and their dog and their grandmother who didn't even watch the fight had it for Edwards. Uh, listen, mean things were said, and I remember. Now, I'm not the type like Ariel Hawani. I don't post my stupid goddamn receipts. Hey, stop calling people out. And I don't just know, you call people out immediately be, in our chats be, all the time. Be your yeah. MMA journalist of the year when you're calling everybody out. But when you do look at this one, Matt, I mean, Lucia Puzzalova, the underdog. Eileen Perez was more than a 2-1 to favorite her last time out against Evan Smith. She opened minus 125, minus 163 average on best fight odds is Perez. We have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprised us there to you. I'm going to say over under 75% Perez. I think they'll be over. I think they're going to be over. They're I'm under gonna... 640 total votes, 65% Perez, 87% by decision. For the 35% that have Puzzalova, 89% by decision. I think Eileen Perez gets tuckered out after the first round. I think she loses the decision. Lucia Puzzalova in this fight. I wasn't sold on Perez on the regional scene. I wasn't sold on Perez by beating Ashley Evans-Smith. I think the takedowns are really good because she just continues to go to that well. But she's not really like an Energizer Bunny. It's not a lithium battery where it goes and then it's done. It's a little bit like those older batteries where we're just, we're like a C-cell and it just goes... She didn't set the Bantamweight record for takedowns her last time. Against out. Ashley Evans-Smith. If you score 100 points in an NBA game against coming, the worst defense, you was, still score 100 points. She was coming off of what Mike Tyson care. used to call spinal surgery. If it was easy, everyone would do it. That's my only point. Yeah! 
listen, she's six and six in her careers. Six succeeded, six did not. Her last win, Evan Smith, okay. before the fight against Perez, was back Rawlings in 2018. It means nothing, nothing. It does, I think. I think those offensive takedowns are going to have some lasting power to them. I don't project a finish for Perez, but I do think her takedowns are going to be able to get her the win in this Split one. Split on this one, Matt. Going Perez. I'm going with Lucia Puzilova. Let us know who you have in the matchup. Ultimately, this fight will determine our record at the end of the year, as these ones do, but nobody's going to remember this fight at the end of it. Matt, some big-time ones on this card. That main event... Brendan Allen taking on Paul Craig. You can get excited about it. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. A heavyweight fight. You didn't know that you needed pitting two top prospects against one another. We have the Brazilian-Canadian Bigfoot Kyle Machado making his long-awaited UFC debut to take on England's undefeated rising star Mick. Park and a member of the champ camp with Tom Aspinall and Phil DeFries. DeFries and Parkin both at a Sunderland, but the belt's going back to Manchester. Matt, we have a big time fight in the heavyweight division this weekend. And why am I so excited about this? Because if you'll remember, back in January of 2022, Matt, we did a video about the next UFC superstar to be signed. You picked Ralphie on Stotts. He had a belt in Bellator and it hasn't happened yet. But my off-the-wall pick was Kyle Machado, who at that time was 6-1-1. One, and one. He's won two fights since. He competed on Dana White's Contender Series this past summer. He was due in 2022. Couldn't make it due to visa issues. But we had a lot to say about Kyle Machado. And a young puppy Chuck made an appearance in this video. He's much bigger now. Matt, let's throw it on over to that video introducing Kyle Machado. How about Canada. So I went looking for Canadian prospects, which is very, very difficult. I mean, think of Canadians that have come through lately. Hakeem Dawadu. There's also Charles Jourdain. But apart from a very few select amount of fighters, it's hard to find Canadians out there that are doing it. Insert Kyle Machado. And if you look at him, 6-1-1, that's a pretty good record. Not a lot of fights, you know, if we're really being honest with it. It's only eight. But then I look at everything that this guy's done. A, for Kayo, he's a guy that came to Canada when he was in grade 12 on an exchange program from Brazil in high school, and he ended up in Halifax, Canada. How did I find that out? An interview he did with James Lynch with My MMA News. So he parlays that, goes back to Brazil, then comes back on a work permit when he's in university, ends up in British Columbia, and then just makes a go of it. Ends up in BC. He trains out of FKP MMA. Head coach is Chris Franco. Trains with Jaden Martin, a very, very promising fighter. And for Kayo, you look at it, and this is what I absolutely love. Heavyweights that don't come in at 265. He is a very interesting prospect because he fights with a big organization out West. And that's the thing that we love to see. When you're a champion in a regional organization, especially when you're testing yourself out against other fighters who are champions in other organizations, that's what you like to see. So it always trips me up. I think PFL, but it's BFL out there in British Columbia. First fight he has in 2021 is for the BFL heavyweight strap. Now, BFL's had a lot of good prospects in the past. Arjan Buller, who apparently doesn't want to fight anybody anymore, but ended up in the UFC, ended up as a one championship champion, competed with BFL. There's Matt Dwyer, there's JBC, Junior Bacon Cheeseburger, Jeremy Kennedy. There are a lot of good alumni out of that program. So he takes on not Jordan Meehan, but Lee Meehan. Look up Lee Meehan's topology page. Record's not good, but look it up. 
he has an insane nickname now, and I'll post it up there on the screen. But yeah, 11 and 15 as of right now, not that great. But he's fought guys like Dan Severn and so on and so forth in the past. He's also jacked to the gills, and he always scared me when he was in Jordan Meehan's corner. So he fights Lee Meehan at the start of the year and beats him in the first round. That's pretty good. You like to see it. Great tie clinch, great knees in the clinch. So then he goes out there and has another fight against Chris Larson. Wins that fight in the first round. They slug it out. He knocks him out. Then he's supposed to have a fight on short notice against McCarthy. And in that fight, Lee Mian has to step in on a week's notice. They fight. He wins by first round armbar. So to recap, 2021, three first round wins. All of them at weights. And this is the important part. 230.1 pounds, 231 pounds, 237.2. And they mentioned it on commentary before the first fight of the year that... Machado was looking to go down to 205 pounds. So there's so many different things to like out of him. But at heavyweight, he has the speed. He has the kicks. He has the jujitsu. And he has those backgrounds. He sounds a lot like Brandon Vera right now. And that makes me nervous. The thing that I like about him is that Chris Dawkins comparison. And for Dawkins, it was too much too soon with Derek Lewis. But we've seen a rise in heavyweights weighing in around that 230 mark that have had a lot of success. He's represented already by MTK Global, Alexander Rakic, Darren Till. That's their management company. And in that interview with James Lynch, he kind of attests to the fact that, yeah, when there were conversations with the UFC, the thing that kept coming up was, I need a little bit more experience. I got to get a win over somebody, you know, UFC Bellator alum. And the one thing that's tricky for him is the contract that he's in right now with BFL is an exclusive deal. Now, he could go back to Brazil and take some fights, but he can't fight with the LFAs of the world, has to get permission from the organization. The only places that he can sign a deal with are the UFC, Bellator, and one championship. Matt, I expect for Caio Machado to end up at least in Dana White's contender series this year. And if he wins, end up in the UFC. If he doesn't end up with a short notice call in the UFC already, because I think he's one of those talents that not a lot of people are focusing on enough. Canada needs MMA representation. You get the Brit or the Brazilian and Canadian flag there, like Lupita Godinez with the Mexican and Canadian flags out there. And we are getting excited about more West Coast talent in Canada. I think it's a great choice. I just don't know why more heavyweights don't think to be a little bit lighter. Because here's the thing. The three greatest heavyweights of all time, and you can't argue this with me, are Fedor Emelianenko, Cain Velasquez, Stipe Miocic. What do those three guys all have in common? They're not big heavyweights at all. They all weigh in around like that 220 to 245 mark, and they're just far more athletic than everybody else, and they don't get tired like everyone else. I think it's a great person to highlight, and I just, I, I don't understand why more people don't put that connection together, where the three best to ever do it in our division all figured out that, hey, maybe being bigger isn't always better. For Caio Machado, I mean, this is a guy, he's a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, has the Muay Thai and kickboxing background to go with it. I think he's a special prospect that a lot of people have to pay attention to. So if you're looking for a couple of guys, in this case, that the UFC should sign coming up in 2022, Caio Machado is an underdog, 6-1-1, the BFL heavyweight champion, tend up in the UFC. So again, since that video, Machado, it was a stutter start. He was supposed to compete on Contender Series. He ended up fighting Edison Lopez for that BFL heavyweight title. And if you go back and watch that on Fight Pass, I don't know who on the graphics team said that one guy was an 80% in striking, one guy was an 88%. But you watch Machado fight against Edison and 
Edison A was just off a knockout loss in the first round against Braxton Smith, where he got torched. He was so much taller than shout Smith. Smith, yeah, shout out Braxton. That testosterone was a little bit too it high was. for the UFC's liking. And if you lose the park reporter like that, it's happy trails for Braxton. But Lopez looked awful in that fight against Smith. Lopez against Machado also looked awful. And listen, I mean, it's a lot of grappling. It's a lot of clinch work, which is just about every Kyle Machado fight. And I left that one going, okay, Machado looked pretty good, but he beat a 44-year-old that looked 44. And listen, off of the takedown attempt, the reversal, they both get up. Machado springs up to his feet. Edison pushed himself off and looks completely gassed at the end of the first round. Machado gas on a fire. He ends up getting the armbar finish in the dying seconds of the first round. So Machado ends up in contender series this past summer. He takes on Kevin Zaflarski, who had won 11 fights in a row since he lost his pro debut. He was supposed to compete on contender series the season before. It didn't happen. In that one, Zaflarski, a big fight, a uh, big favorite in the fight. Machado, the underdog. Matt. Zaflarski didn't show up in that fight. He, he looked awful. And he didn't look like himself. He was like this premier knockout artist. We had gone back and watched a lot of his fights getting ready for that. And we already knew about Machado. Machado just went out there, head way back, throwing his big time shots. There was a lot of clinch work, a lot of movement in the clinch. Ultimately, Machado wins. And I was impressed of how good he looked through three rounds. I thought that was a good thing to have, especially coming into the UFC. Sure. But I was also incredibly surprised that Dana White decided to sign Kyle Machado off of that episode. Now, that was of things to come because they signed everybody. You win, you lose, you draw, you get signed into the UFC off Contender Series this past year. But yeah, Dana White said, not the most exciting fight of the night. Uh, and then he had a surprise look at the end of his quote and he said, um... We're going to take him too. So yeah, a lot of nice things about Machado. We spent a lot of time talking about Machado, but Matt, when it comes into this fight against Parkin, who headlined against Eduardo Neves last year in Contender Series, I, I was excited about Machado. I'm not excited about Machado anymore. I wasn't excited about Parkin coming into the UFC or Contender Series. And now I'm really excited about him. Well, so it's weird for me in this fight. And that's the thing about Parker. You can't really judge a book by its cover. He doesn't look like the most athletic guy. And he'd probably tell you he's not Co the most athletic guy for the division. Combined opponent record outside of contender series in the UFC for Mick Parkin, 18 of 46. This is what I like about Mick Parkin, though. When you look at what he does in the cage, you can apply those skills to any single opponent in the heavyweight division. I like it a little bit, not specifically because Ben Rothwell is so unique with the way he can throw up those weird defensive submissions, but Mick Parkin's somebody who uses physicality, uses that forward pressure, and he does almost have that, like, English boxing style to him to where he will go into the clinch to really wear on his opponents at some times, and I do think it's a good tactic for Parkin to use because sometimes he can be a little bit hittable on the outside. He does throw well in combination. He has a nice uppercut. He throws good hooks too but he can be hit because of the lack of speed and if he is a little bit slow into some of those engagements at least with the clinch with a guy like Machado I think he could get hit at least in some of those in-betweens but the problem is if he is able to wear on Machado with his size with his physicality and if he is able to get off some of those boxing combinations I just wonder about how Machado is going to get his back off the cage and create some of that distance because you're right Machado can have a lot of success in that clinch spot but this is a fight where I think at the open range if he's able to use his footwork he is the fact guy in this matchup he's the much more athletic of the two and uh, no question about it and he really is he moves like a new age heavyweight right he's not one of these big plotting guys who just walks forward with his hands up he does have a good pep to his step and i think if he can use that to his advantage it could take him at least far and we know how good the submissions are for kyle machado but as bad as parkins level competition was on the regional scene 
Lee Meehan's fighting way past when his son's been done fighting, Jordan Meehan, who fought in the UFC. Pretty crazy. So for Kyle Machado, it's a bad level competition on the regional scene. The Zaflarski win is great, and you don't want to take too much away, but Zaflarski didn't look like himself in that one. And at the end of round two, Laura Sanko and Paul Felder, but Sanko is the quotable. I think Machado needs to go out there and get a finish to get the attention of the matchmakers. Nope, you get signed with anything. So again, for Park, and I threw the picture up there at the start, Champ Camp, Phil DeFreeze, it's always been on lock over in Sunderland. Matt, big football team out there in the EFL. Wow. But if you look at it for Parkin, training with Aspinall to get him ready for the fight against Pavlovich. So now it's got to be a renewed sense of energy over there if there wasn't any already. Undefeated, some kickboxing experience for Parkin. But the craziest part about it, it's like when you look at an Elvis Brenner fight. You go, okay, Elvis Brenner, he's a knockout artist. Is he good He's now? this great striker. But if you go and watch him on the regional scene, it's all about the takedowns and the submissions. Mick Parkins like that too. The biggest part of his game is the wrestling, but you didn't really see that against Nevis. You didn't necessarily see it his last time out against Jamal Pogues. That win, Matt. Mick Parkins' boxing looked amazing. He defended all of the advances from Jamal Pogues, and he was able to stay steady through three rounds. So we did get to learn a little bit more at a Parkin. We're really excited about this fight. When you do consider it, Matt, the odds... Holy smokes. McParkin's a big favorite. I didn't see that, yeah. Minus 345 for Parkin. I didn't. So we have a look at the topology votes. Surprise us there to you. That's what the odds are. I'm going to say over under 87.5% Parkin. I'm thinking 90, so I'll say above. Oh my gosh. I said 87.5%, Matt. Parkin at 88%. 60% by decision, 30% by knockout for the 12% that I'm Machado, 56% by decision. Again, I've been high on Machado for almost two years now, really talking about him everywhere I have been able to. But he keeps his head lean back. He throws a lot of looping shots. We know the Muay Thai lineage in black belt in jiu-jitsu, and you see that as a part of his game. But I think Parkin's got a little bit of a wrestling advantage. I think he's got a lot of bit of a boxing advantage. And if he's able to plot forward and land in combination with the boxing shots and shell up a little bit, I think Parkin can get it done here. But it's hard to shell up when you got four-ounce gloves on. It certainly is. But I do think the steadiness out of Parkin is what's going to give him the win in this fight. I think his forward pressure is going to be really important too. And if he can wear on Machado to just make him more available to hit as this fight continues, I think that's going to be a big key to it as well. Eager to see the weight out of both these guys because Parkin's one of the bigger guys you're going to see sure. at heavyweight. And we talked about Machado. Machado being like a 230 to 240 heavyweight ballooned up a little bit his last time there fighting on contender series. So a big time matchup. Unfortunately for us Canadians, both of us going with England's Mick Parkin get to keep it in the Commonwealth there. Some big time fights in this card. Allen taking on Craig in the main event. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's get into it. With Alex Pereira, the two-time glory champ, the glory hall of famer. Now, all of a sudden, after last weekend, the two-division UFC champ at light heavyweight and middleweight. Guy that knows a little bit about him and how to beat him. We're talking about Cesar Almeida, set to make his UFC debut. Just a young 4-0 in MMA, competed on Contender Series this past summer. Week one, Along with a few different fighters on this card, Almeida turning the page and taking on the former Cage Warriors middleweight champ, CLD, Christian Leroy Duncan, one of the most dynamic strikers you're going to find out there in all of MMA. And for Christian Leroy Duncan, his last time out, he took on Armin Petrosian and looked like an absolute shell of himself against a pure 
Muay Thai and kickboxing artist in Armin Petrosian. So when we look at a fight like this, again, it, it it is style meets style because from CLD, when you watch his fights on the regional scene, we go back and we're going to talk about it to the end of time. His fight against Jadi Milan where he struggled with the takedowns. His fights are so fun. That really was the big thing with Christian Leroy Duncan. You can never count him out. The takedown defense isn't all that great. It's like Peyton Talbot who fights earlier uh, or later on on this card. Takedown defense like Swiss cheese, Good but strike. if it's on the feet, you got to watch out. Duncan, now you're taking on Cesar Almeida. When you look at Almeida, this is a guy, he was a WGP kickboxing cruiserweight champ. He was a super combat light heavyweight plush champ. And he did, of course, take on Alex Pereira in kickboxing. Once in 2013, and it was earlier on in the year, he ends up losing a decision there for the WGA cruiserweight belt. He fights him again at the end of the year in December. So once in March, once in December, he beats him in a really close decision. And then they take it to the max. They take it to the limit, like the Eagles would say. In 2015, in July, Almeida takes on Pereira. And he gets dusted. He gets dropped twice in the second round. That time, it was a five-round fight. And he got beat pillar to post. It was a big win for Pereira, who had his hair all cut in different ways. Turns out he's great at combat sports. It was pretty cool to watch. But for Cesar Almeida, even earlier on, 2023, he was taking on a tough level of competition over the glory in kickboxing. I went back and watched his fight against Visa. And in that one, Visa... I mean, does he get beat in the third round? Yeah, Almeida wins that third round. But it was it was Almeida who's really pressure heavy, doesn't tend to check a lot of leg kicks even for a premier kickboxer, but he's trying to pour on the pressure and Visa's able to kind of just shell up, ride things around the ropes. Defensively, he's very good and he struck against them and that caused him some issues in that one. Do you know what I think pure kickboxers have the biggest advantage of over MMA fighters when they make the transition? It's feints. Think about Carlos Albert. Think about Alex Pereira. Think about Ezra Adesanya. It's funny because Almeida doesn't fight with a lot of feints. But he does like to throw his head off center and then throw that right hand over the top. And he will get his head off the center line before throwing his combinations. I just think that's a key to his game that not a lot of other fighters have. Because we see a lot of fighters throw a big action, then get in the pocket, and start to swing wildly. Almeida does do a good job of at least getting his head off that center line before throwing some of his bigger actions. And I think that might help him defensively against a guy like Duncan. But this is where I hate to be the party pooper. Okay, there's one version of this fight, which is one of the great fights we'll ever see in MMA. Like, four-ounce gloves, crazy kickboxing. These guys are going to throw bombs at each other. Christian Leroy Duncan, for as poor as his takedown defense can be, does have okay offensive takedowns. Now, I know he's not one of the more traditional guys. He'll go for some trips from standing positions in the clinch. He'll go for single legs as well. But since that is a part of his game, I feel like the second he gets any type of uncomfortable on the feet, he can just decide, oh, well, I'm just going to start to wrestle now. And unless Almeida's wrestling defense has gotten to the level where he can start to chain wrestle and he can be comfortable with his back up against the cage, I still think he might struggle in some of those positions. But I bring up Alberg's name on purpose, right? That was a fighter who you didn't really know how those skills were going to translate into the UFC. And yes, his debut didn't go all that great, but for the most part, his skills have been able to make a good transfer into MMA. So I'm really excited to see this fight because I do think stylistically, this is a really fun fight. This could easily be on the fight of the night screen before question mark kicks. And up. I mean, Almeida, Dana White's contender series week one, he's in that main event slot. He's taking on the LFA middleweight champion, Fernando. And in that one, you watch it after the fight, he gets a decision. It's his first decision win as a pro mixed martial artist. The other three, they were all knockout wins. Dana White says, and I quote, so let me tell you what I'm not looking for. I'm not looking for 35-year-old contenders. And you had a dive every time Dana White said that. He says it a lot. Uh, so when we do look at it, Almeida gets a contract. Of course he does, because... 
his striking was so good. You go back and you watch that fight where he's taking on Fernando. He's an underdog, almost at a 2-1. to one. He's got Nicholas Mata in his corner. In the first five seconds, he's already defending a takedown attempt from his opponent. And where he struggled a little bit with the takedown defense, I had him winning the first round. I had him winning the second round. I actually thought his opponent, Fernando, had won the third round. But it was a pretty close uh, bit of action where Almeida was winning with the striking. His opponent with some of the takedowns. Judge scored it 30-26, 30-27, and uh, 29, 28. But the coolest part that I saw from Almeida, I really like the inverted triangle he had in the second round where he's got him in the submission and then he's punching and then he's looking at the ref like, hey, we going to end this it. fight? Like, what's going down? He almost surprised himself to be there. You can find Almeida's other fights as a pro mixed martial artist fairly readily out there on the interwebs. If you look at it for a fight pass, he fought... Shuto Brazil 100 against Danilo Souza, who was 5'29 and 1. Not for about a minute. He does nothing. It's a 45-second knockout win. He lands one punch. It's a right cross. He knocks out Souza. His other fight was Shuto. Shuto Brazil 61. Rafael Estevam's on that card. And how did I know that? Because I'm listening. I'm going, is that Dominic Cruz commentating? Dominic Cruz commentated an Estevam fight. Oh, my gosh. Yes, it is. The commentary was awful on that card. Awful. And there were a lot of fighters that ended up in the UFC, not just from Shuto Brazil 61, but Shuto Brazil 100. You had Jafel Filio, John Macapa getting that second shout out. You also had Hani Marks on that one as well. But if you do look at it, it's a lot of the right cross when it lands, the left hook is a jab as a left hook, the body shots that he's able to land, and he changes levels quite a bit. Again, for Almeida, what was it? 30 or sorry, 47 8 and 1 with an old contest as a kickboxer, 27 wins by knockout, no finished losses either. He's a very good striker. We did see a little bit of the grappling his last time out. We've seen that the takedown defense isn't all that great. And for Christian Leroy Duncan, again, can't stress enough. Very dynamic striker, a lot of spinning attacks to the body, to the head, to the legs, and Front kicks, flying knees. Training not just at a range academy, but renegade jiu-jitsu with the Edwards brothers, with all the jiu-jitsu. You're going to see Tom Breeze out of that gym as well. It's a very well-known gym over in England. You do look at this one. I know people are going to be excited about the debuting fighter in Caesar Almeida. You have a look at the odds in this one, Matt. Uh, Almeida's the underdog. Duncan is the favorite. Duncan almost uh, open minus 130 is minus 150 right now. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us there to you. I'm going to say over under 65% CLD. I think it'll be over. I think it's going to be over, slightly over. 705 total votes, 70% Duncan, 31% by decision, 58% by knockout. For the 30% that I've Almeida, 62% by decision, 26% by knockout. You beat Alex Pereira, you can beat anybody. Can Cesar Almeida beat Christian Leroy Duncan? If you can lose to Tyson Fury by split decision and knock out Stipe in the rematch, you can beat anybody. Uh, I like Leroy Duncan in this fight, but again, it's a fight I bring up too much only because it serves a very good purpose. It reminds me a lot of JDS versus Mark Hunt. JDS has takedowns. What does he do most of the time, though? Strike. What's the most dangerous way to fight Mark Hunt? Strike. And I do think Duncan is going to go in there and at least try to test his own striking in the early goings of this matchup. But I think at a certain point, he is going to shoot for some takedowns. And I think we got the worst version of him the last time out. I think there's a much better version should have him locked away in there and i think that's what we're gonna get this weekend and of course she didn't get to see that in the debut disco Trorovich gets hurt and that's the end of it duncan gets the win so you don't get to learn anything but for me i do like duncan i think the grappling can play out even though he's a primary striker and cesar almeida a very interesting fighter if almeida wins this one 
just shoot oh, them yeah. to the moon. I mean, we're Abus Magomedov levels of hype there. For Cesar Almeida, a guy who's been there, he's done that, and he's beaten some pretty good competition in another sport. So both of us in this one going with England's Christian Leroy Duncan to get the win. Let us know who you have in the matchup. Let us know what you liked out of the tape study because you can find a lot from both of these guys. We get some big fights, Matt, coming up on this card. The next one, Ann Helliger taking on Johnson. Ooh. A clash of styles if we've ever seen one. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. Clash of Styles at 135 pounds coming up this weekend. The lone Canadian Chad and Helliger competing for the first time in a long time, taking on Lobo Solitario, Jose Johnson. Not Jose Johnson, can you believe it? I mean, he's 28 years old. He's had 60 fights between his amateur career and his pro career, and he gets to take on the 12 and 6. Chad Ann Helliger, who turns 37 on December the 1st, so a little bit of age at play. But Ann Helliger is such an interesting case. He debuted as a pro in 2010, went 2-5 to start, and then he won 10 fights in a row. And now we're here, and Helliger's last time out, he takes on Alatang Haley, who's not the tallest guy, but he's a big guy for 135. He gets the win over Ann Helliger, the former 125-er, 135-er. And I listened to an interview that Ann Helliger had done with James Lynch. Now, this just on his own channel, Lynch MMA. And Helliger talked about the reason for his layoff. He said, you know, I got hurt in my last fight. Uh, during the fight, I tore something in my shoulder. So he's been off for about a year from the Alatang Haley fight to now. He opened a championship's creed like a splinter gym. So there's another champion's creed out there in Calgary and getting ready for NWO this one. Hollywood and WO Wolfpack. Yeah, tough stuff. But if you look at a Fran Helliger, I mean, he's kind of like Trey Ogden in this one now. You're a player owner coach. And you come into this training with the likes of a Hakeem Dewadu to get ready for a matchup with Jose Johnson. But this really is a clash of styles because, I don't know, Jose Johnson's got some ride or dies out there in our comments section every single time. They're like, yeah, you guys say his takedown defense is bad, but it's actually really good. Well, on short notice, uh, he took on the monster. So he gets back to back the monsters. You go from Damon Blackshear to Chad Ann Helliger. Gets twisted. Takedown defense against one Ronnie Lawrence on Contender Series. Bad. Striking good. But his takedown defense was bad. He's a really good striker. He and he's so good because he has so many effing reps to test it. This is how I look at this fight. In four very unique stages. Justin's takedown defense isn't great, right? He no. can get taken down. I agree with you 100% in that point. But on the feet, I look at this fight in three completely separate ways. I think, oddly enough, Johnson is going to have more success when they're really close together in some of the clinches. I don't think he's going to have as much power in the medium range, but I think he's going to win at the long range, too. So it's weird, right? He's going to have a lot of success in close. He's going to have a lot of success really far away, but he's going to have to monitor that medium range because not only is that where Ann Helliger can land some of those boxing combos, it's where he's going to be able to duck underneath and shoot for takedowns as well. Well, and you watch a guy like Ann Helliger, it's really strange and it shouldn't be, but if you look at him at 135, he's a smaller guy he for is. 135 size-wise. And when he fights guys that are of similar height, and Helliger actually stands really tall up, keeps his arms up. He throws kind of basic boxing combinations. He'll work in his takedowns. He's got some zip on his right hand. He is an interesting fighter that way. But if you look at a guy like Ann Helliger and taller guys, 
We're ducking under a lot of shots. We're looking to work a lot of our takedowns. And again, he hasn't been all that active. He's been counted out in fights. He beat Moin Gafrov by split decision. Gafrov was about a four to one favorite Two on Contender ago. Series. He beat Jesse Strader as a big favorite. Jesse Strader, boxing coach to Aaron Carter in real life. That actually happened. So again, Ann Helliger's biggest win on his career. It's that finish win over Brady Heastan before Heastan ended up on the Ultimate Fighter. He's been able to go out there and beat some good fighters in spots where he didn't think he would be able to. Johnson, he's fought some really big names. Obviously, you're going to get a little bit of that uh, Spider-Man meme. He had a decision loss as an amateur to Charles Johnson. He's fought a who's who as a pro. He was able to beat Mo Miller, who's coming off a contender series win, but not enough to surprise, not enough to wow Dana White. But if you're 35 or if you're a heavyweight who has a bad win, we're just had to wait like two more seasons. I mean, put pen to paper. We got to get you. But Jose Johnson, you might remember him also for the Mono Martinez fight where he ate a straight shot Did down he, the yeah. pipe and got knocked the F out. So when it comes down to this one, Matt, I don't project a high ceiling for either guy. Fight Night Picks fans might think I'm just Mr. Negativity about Jose Johnson. I think he's a great striker, and I agree with you. From the long range, Chad Ann Helliger's got pretty much nothing on Jose Johnson, other than the fact that he trains with a really good Muay Thai artist sure, at his yeah. gym. But if you look at it in the short, I think Jose Johnson with the knees, with the uppercuts, Johnson can have a, a lot of success. But when you're in that medium range and you're trying to play the game of is it a takedown or is it a right hand, well, it's that's like, a fine line you got to ride. It's like Ignacio Bahamondes, right? He's always the fighter I think of where you think, hey, he can fight like his body type, but where does Ignacio have a lot of his success? It is that close range. He's like got the Lewis great Pena. uppercuts. Exactly. There's just some weird fighters like that who, even though it might benefit them more to fight in a different way, they can just generate that good power up close. And not like Johnson can't fight from long range. It's where I think he's going to have a lot of success in this matchup. It's Hey, I like watching an Helliger fight. Like, I think he's in pretty exciting fights. I think this will be an exciting fight just due to the contrast of styles. But again, that medium range is where he's either going to win or lose this fight completely. That's where this whole fight's going to come down to, I think. Johnson, about a two to one favorite in this one, looking for his first UFC win. And Helliger, of course, has a finished UFC win on his ledger. We have a look at the top all votes. Matt, surprised us there to you. People are counting out the Canadian. He's 37. I'm going to say over, under... Usually two to one favorites, not this, but I'm going to say over under 72 and a half percent Johnson. I'll say over. It's going to be over. Oh, it's not. 607 total votes, 56% Johnson, 72% by decision for the 44% that I have in Helliger, 64% by decision. So that's why I say it. Like when you're a two to one favorite, usually you command a lion's share of the fan vote, but not so in this case here. And that's why I'm having such a hard time predicting it. Just because the stages of this fight, I think, just favor each guy so dramatically that it just comes down to what stage are we going to see the majority of the time. I do like Johnson for his ability to start closing some of the distance if it is in that middle range where Helliger can have success. But I don't love where the odds are, to be completely honest. And I'm kind of surprised to see them favor him so much. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it for Ann Helliger, double jab, overhand right, takedowns, and he can ride out a lot of his fights but i think the size advantage will play a factor for jose johnson i do like him in the matchup so please let us know who you have in this one the lone canadian i mean matt we're not Rapid. going with him for chad and helliger both of us with uh jose johnson to get the win let us know who you have in the matchup some really interesting fights on this card the next one we have uh a, a big one matt we have Jonathan a big one Pierce, yeah. jonathan pierce taking on joe anderson Bree a couple of buzz saws at 145 you're not going to want to miss it keep it locked in with fighting picks we always say let's, let's get, get in do it.
A giant matchup in the featherweight division. It's stacked and now coming up this weekend from Vegas, you have Joe Anderson, Tubarau, Abritu taking on JSP, Jonathan Pierce, and Matt. We couldn't have had more differing views on fighters when they came into the UFC after their first UFC fights than maybe we could have with Joe Anderson, Abritu. Going into Contender Series, we thought that Joe Anderson, Abritu was going to be that guy. Takes on Diego Lopez, beats him by technical decision, put... His fingers in that man's eyes. And now, Diego Lopez, is he the best 2-in-1 fighter? He's pretty good, it turns of out. Of 2023, I think he is. But Britu has that big-time win. UFC debut, it doesn't go his way. He loses the decision to Bill Algio. Tuckers himself out. Exactly. JSP as well goes in there. UFC debut, you're taking on Joe Lozon, and you get finished. That's not good. But Pierce, 5-0 and oh since then. And his last time out, he put an absolute beatdown on Darren Elkins, who's rebounded steadily since then. So for Pierce, it really is. It's just in that grind. And Matt, they call me the prop king of MMA. You saw me walk into the the people sitting in this room. Before this video, and you probably thought, what are you doing? Matt, when I look at these two guys, I'm not a big breakfast guy. I, I don't love it. On the weekends, I do. But when I'm out and about, I'm a clip bar guy. I've got steel-cut oats here. People like steel-cut oats. I think they prefer just like instant porridge. But steel-cut oats. And I've got cream of wheat. Cream of wheat. Now, I've always liked cream of wheat. But it's a very divisive breakfast thing. I mean, listen. It's it's either too mushy or you get it real hard. You mix in a little bit of maple syrup. Maybe Did you don't. Did you grow up in wartime North America in the 40s? No, but I like... Who's cream eating cream of wheat in the year 2023 of our Lord? I like cream of wheat. I like steel-cut oats. And I liken both of those breakfast... Uh, what would you call them? Oats? Breakfast breakfast uh, grown things to these two guys' games in this way. Joanna Breeze 2 hits like cream of wheat. That guy absolutely creams the wheat when he's taking out his opponents. When you look at a guy like Jonathan Pierce, though, he can be gritty and he can last through three rounds. And he uses a heavy wrestling approach. And if his opponent is quite scramble ready, like you saw with Christian Rodriguez, like you sometimes will see out of Darren Elkins, he can mix it up. Performance bonus when he took on Maquan Mirkani, finished him in that one. Pierce is gritty like the Steel Oats, Joe Anderson Brito, cream of wheat. And if you want to see an awesome fight, Joe Anderson Britu, Chepe Mariscal, that one is one for the ages where the nuts are targeted and then he goes right up to the dome and gets the win against Chepe. So I know you're amped about this one. I know the fans are too, but I think they needed a little bit of breakfast uh, mumbo jumbo. I think Joe Anderson would sucker punch you if you heard you say you're like cream of wheat. You cream the wheat. A sentence that was said that I can't believe now exists in history. Uh, I'm going to talk about MMA and not about breakfast wheats. The thing about Joe Anderson Brito is he is an exceptionally powerful athlete, be it with his strikes or his submissions. And I do think on the mat, he can have some success. If he is able to get Jonathan Pierce in some of those stickier positions while Pierce is going for his offensive takedowns, because I think Pierce has the better pure wrestling out of these two, but I will be very interested to see what happens once it hits the mat, because Brito is squirrely on the ground. He's not just going to lay there and let Pierce get off his ground and pound and really wear him out with his style. He could wear him out, don't get me wrong, it could just be a byproduct of it, but Brito is at least going to try to work out of those bad positions and use the submissions to make it more uncomfortable for Pierce on the mat. And that has been the nice thing to see out of Pierce, right? The one big thing that went wrong for him against Joe Lozon was he gets cracked by a shot, gets his back taken, and then, oh my goodness, it's all going wrong just so fast. But for Pierce, 
the offensive wrestling and the offensive grappling has just been really nice to see. And it's gotten rid so, of that poor taste that was left in my mouth after the debut because it is such an integral part of his game. It's nice to see him excel in so it. So JSP in the all-time featherweight ranks in the UFC's fourth all-time in significant strike accuracy at 54.8. He's okay. fourth all-time in strike differential behind... Alexander Volkanovsky, Conor McGregor, and Max Holloway. JSP, number four at 2.24. He's second all-time in featherweight history at takedown accuracy, 57.5%. But the big thing is the big shot. When you look at a guy like Joe Anderson Brito, he chases that finish so early and often. He's got that big right hand. He's got a long snappy jab, and there's a lot of pop at the end of it out of that shoot-the-box product that is Britu, and when you look at his ground game, he's got good submissions, and he also has the propensity to get out of bad spots. You saw that his last time out. This is real. Again, I talked about cream of wheat in this video, but this is real. Take this as fact. He was a minus 1,250 favorite his last time out against Weston Wilson. That sounds like a Stanley Marvel name. Yes, Weston Wilson, double W's. Weston went for a knee bar. In 2023, Matt, what happens with knee bars? You either finish it, and get it, or you get bludgeoned. And Weston Wilson got bludgeoned. And every time Britu hit him, you heard thud, thud, thud against the mat. This is the one thing about this, though, that worries me. I think Britu can get held down. Like, initially when I thought about this fight, I thought he was going to have maybe not all of the success with the grappling, but I didn't think he was going to be able to get held down by a guy like Pierce. The more I think about it, though, as this fight continues, I do think Pierce is going to have a bigger opportunity to just lay on top of it. I don't mean that in a negative sense, like it's Jake Shields going for a boring fight. I mean, he's going to use that top position to land ground upon him just to get the judges on his side to start winning more moments in this fight, because I worry about Pierce on the feet. He does tend to walk forward into a lot of these shots, and Britu does a really good job of when he hurts you, you he can finish a submission, too. Yeah, they always talk about centerline fights. Poor JSP is one of those guys. Now, he has gotten better as he's been at fight ready for this one. Wrestling is the first martial art from, you know, high school all the way up. But, I mean, Pierce, his boxing combinations have gotten better. The defensive, I mean, he does change levels quite a bit, so that does work out for him. But when you look at a guy like Britu, in my notes, I had... He's really good in the clinch. He's really strong in it. He's one of the smaller guys that you're going to find like sure. height-wise at 145. But he's got such a strong upper body that he's able to defend takedowns that way, but also get double-unders and work his own takedowns. Again, you'll remember the fence grabs last time out. A, a fight of the night, performance of the night, rather, against Andre Feely. But that Bill Algeo fight, it always kind of clouds your judgment, just like the lows on loss for Jonathan Pierce. Matt, we have a look at the odds in this one. Joe Anderson Britu, the underdog. Open plus 120 at about a plus 125. I think it's a great fight, though, personally. Like, I'm actually really excited for I, this matchup just because I think entertainment-wise, it's going to deliver. Just it's, stylistically, it's, they're going to make for fun. It either goes one way or it goes the other way in a hard way. Matt, we have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us there to you. Again, this is another one of those weird ones. Britu's the underdog, but I actually think the fans are going to have him. I'm going to say over under 65% Britu. I'll say under. You're going to say under? Yeah, okay, and it was the way the fans saw it. 634 total votes, 62% Pierce, 77% by decision. For the 38% that I breathe to, 69% by knockout. Inside baseball, computer's closer. Had my glasses on all day. I can actually read when it says close. Matt, who do you have in the matchup? 
I have a really hard time with it because I so do think Britu, with the power that he possesses, has the opportunity to finish this fight at pretty much any opportunity. But I do think the pressure is going to get to him at a certain point. If he's not able to land the crippling shot that either puts Pierce down and compromises him to the point where Britu can even submit him, then I don't know if he's going to be able to win decision in this matchup. And that's why I do like Pierce. I just think the constant pressure is going to get to Britu at a certain point. If he walks into a big shot, that could happen. But at least it's him putting himself in that position. Well, and I struggle with it too because Pierce's last two fights, he's looked great. And the cardio hasn't waned. We saw the cardio against Christian Rodriguez kind of go down a little bit. And for Britu on this three-fight win streak, he beats Andre Feely. That was so impressive. He's supposed to take on Melzik Bogdazarian, Dagan. He draws Lucas Alexander on short notice and he submits him. Then he's supposed to take on one Kushane Ashkabov. Life has uh, not been rosy for him lately based on his own doing, allegedly. But instead of getting Ashkabov, he gets Weston Wilson. So now he gets a full camp for you know, a guy, and hopefully this fight stays together. I'm going to go John and the Pierce ever so slightly. Again, it's either going to go one way or completely the other way. And I do like Jonathan Pierce with the wrestling, with the advancements that we've seen the last couple of fights. But going back to the Rodriguez fight, going back even earlier on this win streak, he's beating Omar Morales, Kai Kamaka, getting a little bit tired as it goes on, but still pulling out the win. So both of us in this one going with JSP, Jonathan Pierce to get the win. Let us know down below in the comment section who you have, Matt. The next one on this card... Matt, Johnny Parsons Ooh. is taking on Uros Medic. It's an absolute all-timer on paper. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, Let's get, get in. If you like striking, then you'll like this MMA fight. Coming up this weekend, we have the Sluggernaut, Johnny Parsons, the Muay Thai man representing Syndicate MMA. Doesn't have to go far for this fight. Taking on the Dr. Uros Medic, Matt. Medic's last time out, he moves up not a little bit of weight, a lot of bit of weight from 155 to 170 and he takes on Matthew Semmelsberger. Nobody thought he was going to win that fight because he was coming off a hand injury, a really long layoff. We mentioned tricky southpaw sidewinder. He is going to be tough for Semmelsberger, but we all said Semi the Jedi would win. Medic comes out on the other side and now he looks to turn away a much smaller opponent in Johnny, the Sluggernaut Parsons guy who you could get really excited about coming into the UFC and didn't win. Because for Johnny Parsons, I thought, why hasn't he fought since 2021? So then I do my deep dive and I listen to the interviews and I found one that he did with James Lynch, Combat Sport UK. And James says, and this is going to be a weird read, but this is how he said it. James says, what's been keeping you out of the cage for so long? This is what Johnny Parsons said and I transcribed. Man, ah, uh, the... Really? Well, you know, it's it's kind of tough to talk about, you know? I mean, especially like, you know, the biggest thing is I'm healthy now. You don't like that. So then Johnny goes on to say this. You you didn't watch the interview, so I'm going to continue. He goes, I was having some really bad uh concussion symptoms where, you know, I wasn't really able to train without know, getting Johnny. headaches. He also said, uh, six weeks out from the Contender Series fight, I got knocked out cold. So that was in the window where you're not supposed to get knocked out and take a fight. Wow. But Johnny did, and he got a win by split decision over Solomon Renfro. His other quotes that he said, he's training out a syndicate, lacking welterweight bodies. And then he said, I've dropped a lot of weight in this camp. He's lost like 30 pounds. So everything I heard from Johnny Parsons in that interview... <laughs> Makes me not want to pick him in this fight. And then I go and I watch his tape after I listen to the interview. And I know I struggled there. But for Johnny Parsons watching his tape, I think he's a perfect guy to beat Danny Roberts. Unless the post-concussion symptoms 
and the weight cut really, really do affect He's got a great right hand over the top, really nice power on it, can throw variety with that shot too. It's not just an overhand or a straight, he can throw it in a hook variety. Remember when Darren Till was on the come up and that was his big thing, right? They were like, he can throw the left hook as a straight, as an uppercut, as an overhand. It's something yeah. that now everybody can do. Parson with the uppercut. But that's the nice thing about Parsons. He does have variety with that one side of his striking. And what I like about Parsons too is that right leg kick is a very effective weapon for him. So Johnny Parsons give one to take one attitude against Danny Roberts. Certainly won him that fight. He comes out, he gets a finish win, and now he's going to be taking on Uros Medic. And when it comes to a couple of guys that could strike, again, Medic was interesting because we knew he was long. He had a big frame. He was beating lesser guys over exactly. in Alaska. But he was able to utilize all of the martial arts. He could really go out there, grapple. He could overpower a lot of the smaller guys he was facing. We've seen the really good strike in the UFC. And Medic's only loss in the UFC to Jalen Turner, who went on to be ranked at lightweight. So it's somewhat forgivable. But for Medic, the last two... Omar Morales, and then, of course, Semmelsberger. If you look at it for Parsons, some early struggles. He's gone on this tidy little win streak, and he is that premier striker, give one to take one in this division. So I think this could be one of the best fights on this card. It's an awesome fight, and I'm really excited for it. Exactly. There's a lot of competition for that best fight on the card. It's going to be interesting, and I do think Medich at 170 is the proper weight class for him. He is a massive fighter for 150, to where I think it, it reaches a point of diminishing returns, to where he probably does just cut too much weight and it affects the other parts of his game because when he is able to use the power and speed combination that his boxing is able to at like the best of its abilities he is a real problem to deal with and he does throw power shots from both sides too he's got great body shots with the boxing as well and i think the body shots versus the leg kicks of parsons could be a really fun conversation going into this fight and going on during the fight because they're both those to quote teddy atlas water the basement type techniques so i'm gonna be really interested to see whose wins out as this fight continues if we don't get a quick finish on either side because if parsons is able to really chop down those legs of Medich, get closer to him and start well, landing those bombs over the top. Medich isn't going to be able to use that weird dynamic movement that we normally can see out of him. And if the leg kicks aren't landing, if we almost see him go to that well too many times, Medich's timing is phenomenal, especially with the hand speed being so far away. He could close that distance really quick for a guy who's, what, 6'1", 6'2". And if you've got to get Medich switching from Southpaw over to Orthodox, there are some strengths, but it has to be blended in. If he's purely striking from the Orthodox stance, I don't see a big night, a good night for Uros Medich. He's going to get hit a lot more. But from Johnny Parsons, I mean, he's great at bringing his hands up that was the big thing that we talked about coming into the ufc he's got that elbow down by the rib cage blocking the liver he can bring it back up to the head he is hittable when it does come down to those close quarters but when you look at a guy just in terms of pure leg kicks in the ufc obviously you saw it last weekend ufc 295 in the main event alex pareda doing it to yuri prohashka pareda one of the best out there in kickboxing and in mma but johnny parsons is really very good really really good at it the boxing the toughness of him as well he's one of those video game type characters to where i could see johnny parsons getting knocked down in an mma fight pounding his fists against the ground and picking himself back up and getting into it so listen i mean if you enjoy like kickboxer with uh with Jean-Claude Van Damme or some of the great fights and fight movies that he's had, Johnny Parsons, he'd be a guy, like an extra in the background. I'm going to the Kumite. Do you think he'd be going to the Kumite? Do you think he'll ever move down to 155 in the UFC? No, because he's 32 years old. I and guess he said, just... again, the big point, Parsons going into the fight against Danny Roberts. You're talking about concussion issues and 
had to cut a giant amount of weight to get back and ready into fight shape. He had been off for a long time going into that fight against Roberts. I, I don't see him it. ever. I, like I just think the size the difference is going to be apparent in this matchup, even with Menich being the former 155er. That's all. And Danny Roberts was a lot taller too, but Danny Roberts can be fragile once you get into those close quarters. We talked about that. Roberts, Mike Perry, same thing happening against Parsons. So when you look at a matchup like this, Matt, we have a look at the odds. Johnny Parsons, the underdog. Udos Menich, a big favorite. Medish gets a flip-flop from his fight against uh, Simmelsberger to now. And that's a great win to have on his resume because that's by far the best guy he had beat up until that point. I mean, even with loss, I think Semelsberg is a good fighter. You saw Semelsberg well, and Jake I mean, Matthews, exactly. just, right? Medich, no, you're right. It's just Medich on his way to the UFC. You were right to bring out the level of competition and just wondering how those skills were going to transfer. But Matthew Semelsberger getting that win up a weight class is just a really nice win to have on your resume, no matter what. We look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprised us there to you. I'm going to say over under 77.5% Medich. I was thinking 82, so I'll say I over. think it's going to be in the 80s. And it's, it is in the 80s, 691 total votes, 86% Medich, 77% by knockout, for the 14% that a person, 64% by knockout. I think for Medich, a lot of those kicks on the outside, they're not as fast as Johnny Parsons. No. Johnny Parsons, this guy's a whirling dervish, so you got to look out for him. But Matt, I do have Uros Medich in this one. I think the long range attacks, I think he's going to be able to get it done, but man. It wouldn't surprise me if Johnny Parsons had a big upset victory in this fight at all. It's like what I said about Sadikov versus Borishev over the weekend. It's You might think Borishev isn't as good as Sadikov, but stylistically, they're going to bring the best out of each other. Now, I didn't think they were going to bring the best out of each other to where they were exact equals by the end of the fight, but I do think this is a very similar fight in the aspects of both guys are going to bring up the best versions of each other. We're probably going to get a lot of striking, a lot of very fun striking, but I agree with you. I do have Uros Medic. I think he's going to be able to use that range effectively. Both of us going with the down. Dr. Uros Medic to get the win in the matchup. Let us know who you have in this one. Let us know too who you have as a possible fight of the night. We'd love to hear from you down below in the comment section. Some big time fights left on this card. The main event, Alan taking on Craig. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. This fight, you've got a win that left a little bit more to be desired. You got a loss as a two to one favorite that brings you back down to weight class. We have the Judokas. It's Luana Pinedo taking on Amanda Hebas. Matt, both of these women specialize in judo. For Amanda Hebas, Academia Hebas, her father Marcelo got a tattoo of her first UFC win over Emily Whitmar on his arm. Loves his daughter's fights. And if you look at it for Amanda Hebos, started training there, started at a young age in the discipline. She's a black belt in jiu-jitsu and judo. She was an IMMAF champ in 2014, was Amanda Hebos. And in that tournament, Carlos Hernandez, UFC fighter. Shorty Torres was a UFC fighter. Uh, Chepe Mariscal and Alessio DiCirico all became IMMAF champs and all ended up in the UFC. But Hebos, a national judo uh, champ, was Hebas. Luana Pinedo, she always tells the story. From the age of two, my parents were judokas. My uncles were. My mom was. My father was a judo teacher. She, too, was a national champ in judo. But, Matt, I'm going to do a zig to zag in this video. I did one last week. I'm going to do it in this week. Amanda Hebas got finished by Macy Barber at 125. That's not good. Amanda Hebas got knocked out by Pollyanna Viana in jungle fights for the title. Amanda Hebas' chin has been compromised. We saw it in the uh, Marina Rodriguez fight where her deemed, ooh, do it, uh, do it, uh, I don't know what to do. Listen, he's not like Mark Goddard. Mark Goddard would have hopped in there and he would have known that the fight was over. But Hebas, when she gets cracked, it's not that great. Luana Pinedo, she's such an odd fighter. I was amped. AF 
all the way, all the way up into the UFC. The power flips into the takedowns. This looks like a pure judo fighter with a big right hand coming out of Novo Nyao. Few Novo Nyao fighters on this card, Esteban and Luana Pinedo. You're going to have Mateusz Nikolaou in the corner as well. But Pinedo, these last couple of fights, I go, huh? Is she as good as I thought she was? Because again, Sam Yu, she drops her. Big flurry you see out of her drops her. But in the third round, it doesn't look all that good. And Pinedo's got a weird stance. Holds her arms way out. Keeps her kind of chin tucked. It's an odd stance. After round number one, I don't know what I'm going to get out of Luana Pinedo. After round number one with Hebos, unless she's been chin checked by the likes of Vina Janjidoba, we see a lot of takedowns and we still see a lot of volume and the propensity for being mean from Hebos. So Matt... I'm going to tie this up with a bow. I think Amanda Hebos beats Luana Pinedo, who's on this tidy win streak. She's won so many fights in a row. But I, I don't think judo carries her to a win. I don't think her striking is as polished in this fight. I agree with all that. Like, Hebos, I think we've seen the limitations of her skill set in terms of, I don't think she's going to win the strawweight title. Like, she's kind of Or the flyweight title? Or the flyweight title. Like, she's kind of undersized to both weight classes. She's good in a lot of areas, but the real specialists are going to be able to use their specialty and go out there and win the fight for the most part. But I think she's a more well-rounded fighter in this. I like her footwork on the feet, too, when she doesn't get cracked. That's the one thing. I know it's a big ask because we have seen her get hit so many times, but her chin now is a little bit Pat Sabatini-ish, right? Like, you bring up the Vina fight, and that's a good one, right? because she got hit by that, but she was able to fight through the adversity. She just doesn't recover all that well once she does get hit by the big shot. And that's always the concerning thing to see out of Hebos. But it's a little bit like Andrade versus Durham, right? I guess both fighters were kind of at that buy-low uh, opportunity. But I just thought Andrade looked a little bit better in her losses than Durham did, and that's why I had her. Hebos, she might not be that top five fighter that a lot of people thought she was going to be, but I still think she's the better fighter in this matchup. And it can be tough, too, because you have a giant win streak for Luana Pinedo. You got a 6-3 and three fighter in the UFC that's been incredibly marketable through her time there. We do have a look at this one, Matt. In terms of the odds in the matchup, Amanda Hebos is big a pretty favorite. big favorite. Wow. So that is tough. And Pinedo, again, why is it a buy low or a type of opportunity? She did beat Michelle Watterson Gomez her last time out. But if there weren't takedowns going on, there were a lot of sidekicks. She couldn't figure out the range. Pinedo does end up getting the win in there. But it really was a tricky fight for her. It is going to be contested on her 30th birthday. So happy birthday to her. A lot of birthdays coming up because, Matt, there's 28 fighters and birthdays happen. So when you do look at this one in terms of topology, surprise us, say are to you. I'm going to say over under 77.5% again on Hebus. It's while Pinedo is only four months younger than Hebos, because Hebos is so well-known in the UFC at this point. I'm going to say over, though, in the votes. I'm going to say over. It's under. So 718 total votes, 72% Hebos, 85% by decision for the 28% that have Pinedo, 75% by decision. Again, they're going to talk about this. This is going to be the overarching point of the whole card. These two gals were bred to do judo, and then become mixed martial artists. Who's going to be better? I think Amanda Hebos is the better mixed martial artist. And that's why I have her in the fight. No, I agree 100%. And she's fought the higher level of competition. That's why her record's that way, right? It's like what I always said about Matt Brown. By the end of Matt Brown's career, his record didn't look that great, right? Because he only fought guys in the top 15 and top 20 for like 15 straight years. So guess what? Your record's not going to look great if you do that. So I think for Hebos, she is going to get back on the horse in this matchup. Both of us going with Amanda Hebos to get the win in the matchup. Let us know who you have. Have we gone too far? astray from the choo-choo train that has been all hype for Luana Pinedo. We don't know. We'll find that out on Saturday. Listen, some big-time matchups on this card. Again, Peyton Talbot's taking on Nick Gary. Get excited about that one. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it.
Weird fight to be on the main card of UFC Vegas 82. We have the debuting contender series, former Uriah Faber's A1 Bantamweight champ. It's Peyton Talbot making that UFC debut against Slick Nick Aguirre. This is a giant Clash of Styles fight, Matt. Not only is Aguirre southpaw and Peyton Talbot's orthodox, but Peyton Talbot's takedown defense is that of Swiss cheese. And Nick Aguirre is very good with his wrestling and his takedowns. And we were really excited about Aguirre coming into the UFC, albeit on less than a week's notice, exactly. taking on Dan Argetta, who's a specialist in the same disciplines that Aguirre possesses. So Matt, I mean, again, with that excitement, let's throw it on over to a little bit of a look at Nick Aguirre. Representing Illinois, and for Nick Aguirre, has to be a pretty slick transition for him, and I, I'm going to stop it right there. But when you do look at it, he's a teammate of Valley Flow Striking Academy with Carlos Hernandez, who's also on this card, as well as 10th Planet Lombard. And if you go down through the list and you look at Nick Aguirre, all of his accomplishments, he he's a blue belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He competes in a lot of jiu-jitsu tournaments. Even if you just look at his Instagram, if you do a quick Google search, if you go on YouTube, you can find a lot of his grappling uh, tournaments, a lot of the grappling meets that he's been a part of. And he's damn good at those. And he translates those skills into MMA very, very well. Nick Aguirre, also an accomplished wrestler in his own right at school. He went 89 and 37 at Oswego High School. And then he went to McKendry University. And Matt, I'll bring up his wrestling profile here. He kind of, you know, he had a time there, I guess. But my favorite part about the fact that he went to McKendry University and I actually put it on the graphic instead of his reach, because I have no idea what his reach stat is. I put school like it's football. The team mascot for McKendry University, the Bearcats. Do the Bearcat. Do you think Americans know that song by David Wilcox? Probably not. It's a very specific reference. Do the Bearcat. It's a really good song, so make sure you check it out. But I know you watched quite a bit of tape on a Gary. It's, it's really, really readily available. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it all over the place. What did you make of his fights? Because I know level of competition and we'll get to it. It's not really the greatest, but overall a very, very complete mixed martial artist, a grappler, I should say. Without a doubt. And he hasn't had a very long career up until this point either. Like his whole MMA career has basically lasted two years now professionally. So I do think that there is a lot of room to grow. We talked about this a lot, like his style of grappling. And that's what he is. He is a primary grappler and very offensively minded with his grappling. But it's going to be interesting because it really is going to depend on how good his wrestling is to dictate how much success he's probably going to have in this match. When you do focus on it, Matt, we want to do a deep dive and do these guys justice. If you look at it for Gary, 6-0 and as an amateur from 2018 to 2019, but like you had mentioned, 7-0 and as a pro from 2021 to now. His last fight was against uh, Brandon Clausen. I'll put the picture up there. Referee. Gary Copeland. My guy. You talk about that. Like, he must not leave the gym. Unless it's the referee MMA fights. That guy is yeah. yoked. If you look at that one, the commentary team says that he took that fight on short notice. That was back on December 17th. So that was the same night as uh, Sean Strickland's fight against Jared Cannonier. That was the last time a Gary fought. And a Gary couldn't even get his regular corner in that fight. He said that post fight in his speech. And he also said due to the fact that um, with the striking, I'm good at it. I just need to be calm. But once I am. I'm going to F up the guys in the UFC if he ever gets there. And he ended up, you know, getting the short notice opportunity, but total domination with his wrestling is grappling. He's a powerful grappler. He won't really engage in much of the striking. And when he does, he tends to keep his feet back, lean his head in and throw his arms out there, which I'm sure training Valley flow striking Academy with guys like Bilal Muhammad, Ignacio Bahamondes, Yair Rodriguez, you're only going to get better as a striker. You hope some of that stuff rubs off. But your biggest point, Matt, and this is kind of mine as well, 
his opponent's combined record is eight and nine. He is seven and oh, and of those seven wins, those records add up to eight and nine. Not just one guy that was eight and nine. And that's not good. And the best guy that he too, beat, I know. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry to cut you off. I just know we bring up sometimes uh, people having kind of padded records, if you will, and them fighting a lot of people are below their level of opposition. Sometimes some of those opponents are good. But the thing is, like you bring it up, their opponent record is eight and nine. It's not even like his opponents are all that experienced either. Like sometimes if you're fighting somebody, they don't have a great record. Let's say it's 15 and 15 even like on paper. That's not a good record. But at least that guy's been through 30 MMA fights. So at this point, he's going to show you something at the young point of your career that you haven't seen yet. The issue is he hasn't even seen that because all of his uh, opponents have been very young in their careers as well. Well, and the 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 only guy that had a really positive record, the last two guys that uh, you know Gary's fought two and one and four and two, and even in the four and two for Brandon Clausen, his four wins were over guys who were one and eight, nine and fifteen, one one and one, and three and three. So it wasn't that great Van for Clausen not making it to the top. One of the best guys that he's fought, and and four of his seven total fights for Gary were with Col- Coliseum Combat. And I apologize to them because I've never watched any fight under that promotional banner whatsoever in my entire life. Come to find out Chris Lytle's done commentary for them before and some of the Gary fights. But going back and watching them, he also a Gary co-main evented uh, an Anthony Pettis FC card. Got a win over there over two and one Tyler Denham. But overall, my big comparison for a guy like a Gary is a guy who now fights in BKFC or has fought with BKFC, Jason Knight. That's my guy. I I think with him. He's not kind of as rangy on the feet. He's not willing to exchange as much. But Jason Knight, you know exactly what he was going to do. Fight in, fight out, lower weight classes to try and go out there. Use that one hit, one kill jujitsu. Who did he really struggle with? The upper echelon guys and the guys that could kind of capitalize on his defensive lapses. But when it comes down to it, for a guy like Gary, of his seven pro fights, three at a catch weight of 140 pounds, two at 135 pounds, one at lightweight, where he weighed 149.3 pounds and won at featherweight at 145.6. A Gary Short notice in January. Wasn't able to pull out the win against, uh, again, Dan Argetta. What, over 10 minutes control time for Argetta. All three judges scored 30-27. So he goes back to the drawing board. And when you're a specialist in the grappling, in the wrestling, and you train at a gym like Valley Flow Striking, you're going to get to work with some of the best in the world. Obviously, you see it on his Instagram, Yair Rodriguez. But for this camp, more importantly... Sidekup Kakrakmanov and Sergio Pettis. So some really good guys to get ready for Peyton Talbot. And I'll be honest, I didn't watch any contender series this year. Live. Live. I watched it after the fact. So Talbot, he's on week one. You see Cesar Almeida on this card. You see Kyle Machado. Peyton Talbot fights after Kevin Borjas gets a win. He had a heck of a fight last weekend. And you're starting to see these 2023 fighters trickle in. Talbot undefeated as an amateur. Uh, what was it? It's 11 fights combined, pro and amateur. He's won. Uh, Gary was in that same spot, take on Argetta. It was 13 fights, pro and amateur as a win streak. Talbot makes it 11. 10 of those 11 are finishes. Last time out was his first decision win. And none of them are first round finishes out of those 10. And we've seen him have to withstand a lot of adversity in the takedowns to then come back and beat some of these fighters. And he's a really fun guy to watch coming out of Reno. What is it? Reno Academy of Combat. A gym where if you go on their website, in the header, it says in this order, Matt, from left to right. uh, We've got home, then about, then fitness classes, nutrition, MMA, the fighters that represent that gym. And the last thing, firearms training. Matt, 
If it doesn't work with the striking, you can do that. Got that thing on you. It's the United States and it's Nevada. This is my big thing about this fight and what I really like out of Peyton Talbot and his striking style. He does ride a very fine line of being a power and volume striker to where he can incorporate the two into his style. And it's nice to see, right? Because that's one of the biggest question marks I feel like we have every time there's a really good striker who comes to the UFC with a lot of finishes on their record. It's, hey, how good is their lasting power? What are they going to look like after defending a lot of those takedowns and having those arms burn out? But Talbot does still do a good job of throwing in combination. He doesn't completely get rid of the kicks either as the fight continues. He does do a good job of throwing that right high kick in combination with his hands. The one negative I will say though out of Peyton is when he throws his right hand, he can be a little bit long with it and guys can counter him down the middle in very straight ways. He does have that, hey, I'm pretty big for the weight class and I'm pretty tall so I can keep my head up style. And not that this fight against uh, a Nick's going to be the one that really catches him for it. But if that's an issue that we see in your fighting uh, style over and over and over again, well, if Eventually, someone in the Bantamweight division is going to catch you, but I can't say enough good things about his offensive striking. He is a dynamo at moving forwards, being a buzzsaw, throwing in combination, and that's why I keep on bringing up the combinations, because he does do a great job of pumping the jab in his opponent's face, kind of blinding them with that jab, and then letting the rest of his power shots go. The weird thing, being this tall, you heard the comparison on Contender Series when he took on Tracy Cortez's brother, 0-2 Dana White's Contender Series vet, Reyes Cortez. It was... Look at this guy, and I think it's based on height and hair alone. The Sean O'Malley comparison at 135 is 5'10". Both these guys, realistically, two of the bigger bantamweights yeah, that you're ever sure. going to see. But for Peyton Talbot, that comparison extends not just to the physical traits, but also to that combination ability that he has. Now, just like Sean O'Malley, leaves himself out there sometimes, does get hit. Just like Sean O'Malley... Doesn't check leg kicks. And Peyton Talbot, man, against Reyes Cortez first round, I noticed it. And then it progressed as I watched more of his fights with A1 and with some of these other promotions that were out there. So again, the takedown defense, you want to see his fight against uh, Rivas out there, who had a good record and still has a good, good record. It was a good win because it was almost like Rivas had to fight for the takedown so much from round one to round two, where he won both those rounds, where round three he didn't have anything left in the tank. And Talbot likes to go for a lot of knees to the body, a lot of um, throwing my combinations body, coming back up to the head. He'll switch stances quite well. Again, this is the biggest clash of styles on this card, and there are a lot of clash of styles on this card. So if you do look at it, Matt, I mean, in terms of the odds in this one, I don't know where they're going to be. Oh, my Talbot's almost a 6-1 to one favorite. So we have a look at the topology votes. Matt surprised us there to you. I guess I'm going to say over under 90% Talbot. I was going to say like 90 what are you setting the percentage at? I'll say over. You're going to say over. It's slightly over. 700 total votes. 93% Talbot. 37% by decision. 54% by knockout for the 7% that I have a Gary. 45% by decision. The reason why we put the clip in about Nick and Gary is because this guy is wrestling against everybody that's not Dan Argetta has been lights out. Lights out. That's solid. It's lights out. So if you look at it for a Gary, if he's able to get this down in the mat, I think he's got a better ground game than everybody that Peyton Talbot's ever fought for on sure. this 11 fight win streak. I don't know if it's going to be enough to get the finish over him. Again, I look back at that Zach Richard win. Zach Richard from New England. Zach Richard. He's from Maine. He's going to go all to these great high heights. I went, I watched his fights. I thought he was going to be great. It hasn't happened. And Gary finished him inside of a round. That's pretty impressive to me. Might not be for other people, but I don't know if it's going to be enough to beat Peyton Talbot. And I think that tricky southpaw stance, like Gary's very basic in his boxing combination. So I think for those reasons, Talbot can get it done. However, when you're 27 and you're seven and one, and you take almost a year between fights, you can improve with your striking. So listen, 
This can be an oil meets water type of fight. And if a Gary wins with some of those takedowns, it might surprise some people. I, I'd, I'd be getting ready for it, but I think T Talbot's like really good with the striking. Uh, so do I. I think the striking is a big enough of an X factor to where even if he does give up a couple takedowns and can just somehow avoid the submission, I think he's going to be able to do enough on the feet to make up for the difference. You're right. A Gary can go away and make his striking better, but that's, I think he needs longer than that to make it. up for the difference. A you know? six to one favorite for Peyton Talbot. It gives me... Much pause. I thought it was going to be like two to one. So Matt, both of us in this one going with Peyton Talbot. Pop popcorn. You get to learn more about these two exactly. prospects. Some big time fights left on this card. Matt, co-main event. Jake Matthews taking on Michael Morales. Sounds like an Apex card. It is. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Apex. We always say, let's get into it. It's sure to be a divisive fight between fight fans, Matt. We have Jordan, the Monkey King, Levitt taking on Chase Hooper, known as the Dream. And Matt, as fate would have it, it's not a clash of styles. These two guys fight in very similar ways. They're very limited in their striking. They're very adept with their grappling. And they both debuted as pros on the same night. So listen, they had to fight. And if you look at this one for Chase Hooper, defies all odds. Last time out, he gets a win against Nick Fiore. And even though Fiore was working the takedowns, that had to be about the worst game plan from the member of New England Cartel. For Jordan Levitt is last time out. Picture this. I'm going to sell you on something. Will you buy Jordan Levitt knocking out a man in the UFC by flying knee. You probably wouldn't, but it actually did happen against Victor Martinez. So Jordan Levitt, an amazing win his last time out, a crazy story to be told. And if you do look at it, I mean, Jordan Levitt, we mentioned every time. So let's play book club, Matt. Right now I'm reading the book called Crucible. Crucible. It's by Charles Emerson, the long end of the great war and the birth of a new world. Everybody reading about the First World War like me. Probably not. But Jordan Levitt, he reads different books than I do. You and his YouTube, about people who love history. His YouTube, YouTube channel is dedicated to more fiction works than the nonfiction. But when you look at this fight, again, Chase Hooper's made advancements in a striking, going from an umclaw down to upstate karate to work with. Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and his pops. Jordan Levitt... Things have come along at Syndicate, but really when it does come down to it, grappling is the first martial art. And for Jordan Levitt, when he's taking on pure grapplers in the UFC, Claudio Poyas is a loss. And Patty Pimblett's a loss. But they are very specific kind of grapplers, right? Like both those guys are very, very good submission aces. I have a weird thing about this fight, though. Is Slavkovsky any good for the Habs? Like, I know he wasn't good. Okay. These guys both remind they, me they keep of trying. These guys both remind me of draft picks who your favorite team might get, who you would just like to see them develop on the bench more before they try to go out there and really prove themselves. It's like Peyton Pritchard. Peyton Pritchard's the worst player to ever demand a trade request. And luckily the Celtics didn't trade him. You know what they did? They gave him a decent extension. They said, hey, we're going to give you a bigger role now because you've earned it. You played ball coming off the bench. And both of these guys I liken to Peyton Pritchard in terms of they do have good parts of their games, right? You bring up the grappling for both of them. They are great grapplers. But I just don't know if they've had enough time to really let the other parts of their game grow to say, hey, we're now ready to be the co-co-main event, if you will, on a fight night card. But they are both cursed with that position of 
Chase Hooper was a very hyped up, hey, you're the youngest guy in the UFC now, you're the new Sage North cut. And for every Sage North cut, it, it doesn't really work out, right? Like some of these Uber prospects work out. Muhammad Makayev, he's a very young man who's doing great things in the UFC. And Hooper, I think he's doing better than probably Northcutt, right? Like he's still in the organization. He has made improvements on his game. I can't not say that, but for sure. But for Levitt, he's also kind of in that same position. I just, I look at this fight as kind of a do-nothing fight because we're going to have the same question marks surrounding both fighters afterwards, aren't we? I mean, yeah, like Hooper goes out there, puts up a stinker against Steven Ocho Peterson from bottom. He's getting hit a lot. He's getting taken down. But listen, you can have takedown defense like Swiss Cheese if you're Mackenzie Dern or Chase Hooper until you can't. Hooper then goes up against Felipe Kolarish, gets a big-time bonus in that fight, gets a win, and then his next time out against Steve Garcia gets promptly knocked out. Now, do I see that happening against Jordan Levitt? No. For Levitt, I bring up the reasons of, well, you look at those two losses in the UFC. There's lone two pro losses. He loses to grapplers by grappling. He beat Matt Sales by inverted triangle. He slammed Matt Wyman for a bonus. He beat Trey Ogden by split decision in a fight that most people thought the grappling of Levitt, the, the striking of Ogden, who wins at the end of it. When you do look at the striking just by the numbers, I find it funny when you look at Hooper in his limited sample size in the UFC and Contender Series, and here's why. Strike differential. Five significant strikes landed per minute for Hooper to 3.67 absorbed. It's positive and a pretty good spin. 36% strike per, like defense rate. That's really bad. His knockout ratio Contender Series and uh, UFC combined for Chase Hooper, 0-4 to five against it's bad it's really bad so again both these guys are uber specialists and i think when you look at the way that jordan levitt goes for a lot of his takedowns it's a lot of single legs it's a lot of single legs chase hooper you can take him down in any manner because he's going to be looking for a submission if jordan levitt goes for a high propensity of single legs his next going to be out there to be submitted by chase hooper who specializes in defensive submissions so when i look at this one matt i pick chase hooper in losses and I picked maybe against Jordan Levitt. Uh, or, or maybe I have picked Jordan Levitt in some tough spots. But I know I picked Chase Hooper in fights that he's lost. And I've looked really stupid. You think back to the big... Let's give Chase Hooper a big step up. He's such a prospect. Let's give him Alex Caceres. And he got hype checked. This is another one of those... It's not a Peter Barrett fight because Peter Barrett's Muay Thai artist, but it really is another one of those skill checks on the way. It's to figure out who's Peyton Pritchard and who's Malachi Flynn. Not good Peyton Pritchard, you know? Delano Banton. Because I do think the winner of this can still go out there and make improvements within the next, you know, five, six months until their next fight. And then, you know, keep on building upon that. But the loser, uh, you know, where do you go from here? Uh, Where do we go now? Because you've got a big name. And again, that's why I see they're both cursed with that. Both guys have bigger names than they probably should for where they are in the division. And that's why they're fighting so high up in the card. And that's why they're fighting each other. You go, you get a phone call from your mom. You go, hey, ma. She goes, what are you up to? Well, I'm watching the UFC. I'm thinking about it. Chase Hooper is a minus 250 favorite. What should I do with that? Hopefully your mother goes, leave that one and live to see another day. Go watch the co-main event, son. Matt, when we look at this one, Chase Hooper's uh minus 250 favorite. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise us there to you. I'm going to say over, under... I keep going to it. 77.5% Hooper. I'll say over. I think it's going to be over. It's under. Wow. It's oh my gosh. Way. 767 total votes. 54% Levitt. 73% by decision. For the 46% that have Hooper, 57% by decision. 25% by submission. Matt, the fans have Levitt. The odds are on Hooper. Who do you have in the fight? I initially thought I was going to have Levitt like the whole time I ever thought about this fight, but so I have I. Chase Hooper. So have I. Uh, 
Don't feel good about it, because every time I think Chase Hooper is going to take that jump and start to look better, he rarely does. But uh, yeah, I just think the defensive submissions are going to do enough to defend some of the takedown attempts. And off his back, he is quite the active fighter, right? Like you said, he's going to go for a lot of those defensive submissions. And I think that's going to at least help him work out of some of the poor positions he might find himself in if he is giving up a lot of takedowns. Levitt's a better striker. It's a weird thing to say, but Levitt's a big reset power guy, and it's not like he's throwing big looping shots, but he does put a lot into his shots, and Levitt is a guy that can withstand all three rounds. We've seen that before. He's a guy that the cardio can wane a little bit as grappling progresses. With Chase Super, you know how it lights out. The jiu-jitsu can be. The takedown defense is porous. The striking defense, it's head on a center line, but it's it's... It's lean back with no pullback, and that's the biggest trouble. It's got him caught. He's been caught off balance in some of these knockdowns, but if Steven Peterson drops you three times credited in a fight, that's bad. That's so bad. So for me, I do have Chase Super in the matchup. I think his grappling can show up to show out, but uh, Matt, this is a tricky fight. The fans, the odds, they are at uh loggerheads as people never say i was gonna say as people always say they never say that so <laughs> both of us going with chase super in this one i'm surprised an unpredictable co-main event uh yeah if you told somebody a couple years ago that jake matthews would fight michael morales in a co-main they never believe you but it's actually gonna happen you're gonna want to keep it locked in with fight name picks we always say let's, let's get into it, it. a giant skill check co-main event coming up this weekend on the periphery of the top 15 we have the uber talented undefeated ecuadorian prospect michael morales putting that shiny 15 and 0 on the line against 10 year nearly 10 year ufc veteran a guy who's had 18 fights under the promotions banner including a tough nation's appearance against one olivier aubin mercier we're talking about the celtic kid jake matthews matt just when you think jake matthews is out of it just when you thought, hey, is he only going to be fighting occasional regional fighters in the UFC in some nondescript location? Jake Matthews was finally starting to get some of these step-ups in competition. And lately, he's been dropped a lot, but he's been able to rally through. The five-on-in, which is his last five fights, he's 3-2, and two, beat Diego Sanchez before he was out of the UFC. Got completely mollywopped in the grappling by Sean Brady. He beats Andrea Fialio, whose chin... <laughs> Got checked too many times. Jake Matthews for three minutes looked like the greatest fighter of all time. He got dropped so many times against Matt Semmelsberger. The jabs, everything. Semmelsberger drops him and Matthews last time out. He submits a guy who was 170, 155. It's going to be 170. Darius Flowers. So not a debuting fighter, but a contender series fighter. One of those guys. But for Matthews, that was a step down, I'd say. It was a a step down. No disrespect to Darius Darius Flowers. Not whatsoever. I did that enough on the contender series show last year. He's got small hands. He can't catch the ball. I feel like Stephen A. talking about Kwame Brown. But when you look at it for Michael Morales, the reason why I say this is a skill check fight with Jake Matthews going up and down and up and down Morales, undefeated. Morales beats Varen Tednikov. Looked great on Contender Series. He looks awesome in his UFC debut. His last two fights. Yeah, he finished Adam Fugit, but he got chin-checked in that one. His last fight against Max Griffin, Matt, he's lucky that he won that fight. Max Griffin put it on Michael Morales. He had him hurt at multiple points. So now all of a sudden, Morales gets to come in this one and prove once again that he deserves to be up there with the Ian Garys fighting on a pay-per-view card to end the year. With the, the Shopcott Rachmanos, Michael Morales could be thought of as that fighter because, again, Ecuadorian wrestling. Matt makes fun of it, but we've seen how good his wrestling can be. If he wrestles in this fight, he can win. 
But if he goes out there and strikes against Jake Matthews, he could find himself in a world of hurt. He very well could, but again, I think a lot of this fight does come down to the overall durability of a guy in Jake Matthews, because when he is comfortable and at least confident in his ability to take some of those shots, he's just such a better fighter when he's able to be on the inside and work his boxing combinations. He has surprisingly fast hands, and the thing about Matthews is, I think he's a good representation for it takes time to grow into your weight class, because he wasn't a big guy at 170 early on when he well, initially moved yeah, up. He's big now. Well, you gotta say that. I mean, Tough Nation's 155 against the PFL millionaire, and then he ends up 170 after all. And he is a much bigger fighter than he was back then. And I think it did take his body a little bit of time to adjust to the ad at 15 pounds because it's not a small jump from going to 155 to 170. But he was on a little bit of run there where he was using the physicality. He was able to use the offensive wrestling. He has decent defensive submissions, but that was the problem even earlier on in his career. When he gets hit, he will go for some ill-advised takedown attempts himself. And that's where he can leave himself open for submissions. And it's weird, for as talented of a grappler as Jake Matthews, is he can get stuck in sticky situations for being as dominant as a physical force of a wrestler and as a submission specialist as he is but the thing about Morales that I'm really interested to see is we brought in about some other fighters on this card is he is only 24 years old and if he is able to keep on making improvements fight in and fight out he's got a pretty good base to continue to build upon I, this I never say this but I don't think he trains out of a gym that helps him at all he trains out of a gym with a lot of smaller guys that go out there to stand and bang and I think that's rubbing off on him in a negative way. Since he's come in Dana White's Contender Series and into the UFC, he's been training at Entram Gym. He's made Tijuana home. And again, he's continued to win, but I haven't seen anything kind of come out of training there that's made him a better fighter. If anything, it's made him a lot worse and it's dulled some of his sharper skills. We haven't seen the wrestling as much. We see him against Trevin Giles. He's on the back foot. He's on the back foot. Giles is doing a good job boxing. Lands a nice power shot. He ends up getting the finish against Fuget. He's got to withstand to get the win. And then his last time out again against Max Griffin. Griffin's a good fighter. I talked about Reno Combat uh, Academy earlier on. You got a fighter debuting and Peyton Talbot coming out of that gym. There's one guy on like on their wall. Max Griffin's on that wall. I've watched Griffin fight Matthews one, 15 times. There's one other fighter out of that gym that's on their website that's kind of been anywhere adjacent to the UFC on early career Paige Van Zandt. So wow. listen, with Michael Morales, I, you can't count out Max Griffin. You can never count him out. But I, I, it's a big negative even in that win. So we look at this one, Matt, in terms of the odds, you got a couple of big time fighters. Morales, probably predictably a big favorite against Shake Matthews. You look at the top all she votes. Surprise to us there to you. I'm going to say over under 70% Morales. I think it's going to be over. It's going to be over. It is over by a wide margin. 740 total votes. 85% Morales. 61% by decision. 28% by knockout for the 15% that a Matthews. 54% by decision, 27% by knockout. Who do you have in the matchup? Matthews by decision isn't a bad pick. Like, if you tell no. me that's your prediction, I'm not going to disagree with you whatsoever. But when you look at their ages, you'll say, hey, Matthews only five years older than Morales. He's on this side of 30. Like, he's probably doing great. He's a weather 29. He's been in some difficult fights at this stage of his career, and I just worry about his ability to eat some of those shots of Morales. You might be right. Maybe he isn't making improvements, but even the fighter he is now with the power he possesses, I think if he lands on Matthews, he's going to be able to hurt him, and maybe he doesn't need the wrestling. Even if he just hits Matthews and hurts him with a shot, remember what Rocco Martin did? He hit him with a big shot, Matthews goes for an ill-advised takedown, attempts get put in a submission, and he goes out after it. So I could see a similar situation happen where maybe Matthews is even the one who engages the grappling after he gets hit by a shot. So I do have Morales, but like you said, it's a good skill check and a nice step up in competition. I'm 
Remember Rocco Martin, everybody? Remember how good he was? They probably don't. And then it was gone. Matt, I do have Michael Morales in the matchup. I think the wrestling, if, if it is as sharp as it was on the way up, it could be an X factor in this fight, but we haven't necessarily seen it as much in the last few. He has defended some takedowns. He has really good ability to get those hands up there. Almost like... Uh, like Tom Aspinall, Sergey Pavlovich. I mean, if He's those two guy guys are defending takedowns, the arms are up really quick. Michael Morales reminds me of that from the tape study of last week. But again, he does have those nice long-range straight shots. But his striking defense is bad. It's bad. So when it does come down to this one, eager to hear from the fans, both of us going with Ecuador's Michael Morales to get the win. And that sets us up for the main event, Matt. Brendan Allen taking on Paul Craig. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it. A big-time fight in the middleweight division. Main event it is. We have all in Brandon Allen, his second UFC main event. The first one was abbreviated. Three rounds against Andrea Muniz. This time, he gets a tough test, and it is against Scotland's Paul Craig. As always, one half of your hosting duo, Allen Craig, is going to mix you up. It's Craig Allen at Craig Allen FNP. On X and Instagram, at Matt Allen FNP on the same respective socials. Matt, when we do look at this matchup, I mean, for Brennan Allen, a five-fight win streak. He's got some finishes his last time out. He drops Bruno Silva, submits him. He looks amazing. He beats Christoph Jotko in very impressive fashion. And Allen, it wasn't all that long ago where he was rushing against Chris Curtis. He gets finished in that one. For Paul Craig, two quick losses at light heavyweight. All of a sudden, you're 35 and you're fighting a middleweight for the first time in your career. And his last time out, he I finishes him off anymore. Andrea Muniz and Matt, this is, from all accounts, Paul Craig's first five-round fight that he's ever had in his long pro career. He was the Bama light heavyweight champ before he came into the UFC. He was also the fight star champ at light heavyweight. But those were three-round fights. So a big opportunity for Paul Craig in this spot. You can never count him out. He's not out until he's out, if that makes any sense. And he's coming up on a 36th birthday in the not so uh long way future and if you look at it for paul craig a little bit of a familiarity on this card i mean he was in the corner of mick parkin when parkin fought in contender series last summer he's training out of that hit squad up there in scotland getting ready to take on Kilcliffe fc's own brendan allen and for paul craig nine six and one since 2016 when he debuted in the ufc eight of his nine wins have been performance bonuses the and only one the competition the only one that wasn't was the rematch against shogun hua or Shogun tap due to strikes. My favorite martial artist is a kid, Matt. I don't believe that fight happened. I just don't believe it exists. It never yeah. happened in my mind. Do you think people would believe it if I said I didn't watch that one to get ready for this one? Because I didn't. Because I didn't Emotionally, want it to, I couldn't handle it. it. I didn't want it to hurt my soul, and it didn't have a lot of bearing in this one. But when you look at this fight, Matt, again, Paul Craig defying the odds last time out. That's going to be a big talk. It really was incredible to see. But that's the thing about Paul Craig. When it goes well, he looks like one of the great fighters of our time. But he reminds me of, like, well, no. just when I think of his Krilov fight. It went so bad. He I, looks like he's knocked out. He's, his head, his eyes are up in the sky like they have been many well. times before. When he gets guys in submissions, he is one of the great submission artists we have ever seen in the U.S. FC. And I know that sounds crazy to say. You probably imagine, oh, Hoist Gracie, Damian Maya. Paul Craig genuinely is on that level when it comes to his MMA submissions. He's been able to prove it time and time again. And when he is able to use some of those Hail Marys, because yeah, they do come from ugly spots every now and then, but his submissions are so good that it gives him the chance to win basically every single fight. And with Brennan Allen, he has become much more of a well-rounded mixed martial artist as his career has progressed. He was much more grappling heavy earlier on in his career. We saw him with much more of a ground and pound submission style 
style. He had a great rear naked choke. Still does, don't get me wrong. It was just much more at the forefront of his game. And then it felt like we saw the progression of his striking almost happen in parts. We saw the kicks kind of show up out of nowhere. And then we saw the hands speed up to them too. And the recent level of success he's been able to go on in this recent win streak has been nice to see. I know the Malcoon fight was a lot closer than people would probably have enjoyed, but he looked great against Jaco, like you had mentioned. And I thought the Muniz fight was going to be a much more difficult match for him than it ended up being. But that was the one where I was like, okay, maybe he has right at the ship to get back on track. Yeah, I mean, sometimes in the in the future, people are going to remember you going 12-0 with that draw on the UFC 295 card. And sometimes Brennan Allen's going to put you on an Instagram poster when he goes out there and he beats Andre Muniz. And some people remember it, and some people don't. But when you do look at it for a guy like Brennan Allen, the two-fight sample size, you got the Sean Strickland loss at the bottom by finish where... Brennan Allen, is he going to be able to start out strong? No, he's on the back foot. Sean Strickland's boxing his ears in. He gets the win. He's the a loss, champion. The loss to Chris Curtis where it's like, okay, Brennan Allen, it looks like it's coming. It looks like it's coming. No, it's not. He got railroaded by Sean Strickland's best buddy. The two fights in between, Carl Robertson and Puna Soriano. That Soriano fight, I think, won a lot of favor with, okay, the striking is progressing. Now on this five-fight win streak, really Sam Alvey, Malkoon, it was a lot of wrestling, bit of a stalemate. You might actually be surprised. I thought Jacob Malkoon, like, he really showed up in that fight. But Christoph Jaco, Andre Muniz, and then Bruno Silva. The boxing to go with the kicks, it's really come together. You finally find yourself at Kill Cliff. And I know it's changed. Not hands, but it's, what was it? Sanford. Oh, yeah. It was Hard Knocks 365s. It was Black House. Henry Hoof's Black gym. Zillions before that. Yeah. Henry Hoof's gym. It really has changed names a lot. But... Brennan Allen training with some of the best middleweights in the world out of that gym. Really it helped. really has helped him. And going back down through, looking at his record, going back and watching his fights, if you do look at it, he's had five-round experience. The Moses Marietta fight for the lightweight, or the, the middleweight strap with the LFA. That's defending the title. He's able to go out there before that and beat Tim Hilly. Wins the belt. He had a five-round fight against Eric Anders. Didn't get it done in that one. He had a five-round fight against Sidney Wheeler. Got it done in that one. So, Matt, Brendan Allen's had a lot of championship experience. It's just been a while for him. But when I look at this fight, I can't stress it enough. Brendan Allen's striking. As as it's advancing as it's been, it's worlds apart from Paul Craig's. I just worry about two things. He does throw a lot of body kicks, which could be caught for takedowns. And if Paul Craig gets on top of anybody, the fight could be over just like that. And he has good power, but his power's not so insane that I think he's just going to go in there and blow the doors off Paul Craig, right? I think Craig is going to have time, at least, to shoot for his own takedowns. Be it weak ones, even if he pulls guard a thousand times. That's what I mean. Like, when it doesn't go well for Paul Craig, it is not the most enjoyable experience to watch. But when he is able to get those Hail Mary submissions, it's very much like breaking down a Francis Ngannou fight, right? I know Ngannou got a lot better with his wrestling and well-roundedness by the end, but his jiu-jitsu is like a knockout puncher who always has the power until the end of the fight. They might get it done in different ways, but a stoppage win is a stoppage win, be it if somebody taps out or if they get knocked out. And Paul Craig really does have that kind of submission ability. The Ankalaya fight more than proves it. It was the most insane last-second finish you will ever see in your life. And let's be honest. Ankalaya like Cleveland Browns, Baltimore Ravens? Wow. Paul Craig probably loses that fight nine times out of ten, right? Oh, yeah. But the one time he fought Ankalaev was the one time he wins out of that situation. And I just think that is more than proof that, hey, he could win any fight. To me, again, Paul Craig has come along with some of his striking defense. I mean, I think back to that Alonzo Menafield fight. He throws a spinning attack. 
His back is completely the other way, and Menafield blasts him and finishes him in the first round. He has made some leaps and bounds here, especially for a guy that's progressed through his career. Now, all of a sudden, in the second weight class, and for him to do what he did to Muniz, obviously the blueprint was provided by Brendan Allen, sure. but there are ways for Craig to win. You go back to the Kyle Dawkins fight that Allen had. First round, looks like Allen. Second round's competitive. Third round's Dawkins, and in a five-round atmosphere, you can never count out Paul Craig, though he will often puff as fights go on. You do worry about that a little bit. We have a look over in our YouTube community tab on this one, Matt. We threw it out there to the folks early on this afternoon. And listen, I mean, usually you guys show up in the masses. Not so much so far, but 63% going with Brendan Allen. One comment. I don't think people are looking forward to this card. Probably I don't not. think they're looking forward to this one. Jam3795 says Allen. Matt? I've got a tough time because, uh, listen, my name is represented by both men in different capacities, but both by the last name. I have Brennan Allen in this fight. Again, I think the striking is that much better. The one-two down the pipe, you can mix in the right hook. And I do actually like the kicks to the legs, to the body. I don't think the Paul Craig is going to pose the biggest problem for him. We all said that before the Muniz fight. We True. say that in every Paul Craig fight. And he has a positive differential in the UFC. But I do like Brennan Allen in this fight. I'm also get Allen in this fight. I think his well-roundedness should be able to carry him to a win. And I'll be really interested to see how he looks in that fourth and fifth round at the UFC level, right? Because I think that's what this fight is for him more than anything. It's his Adesanya versus Brad Tavares. The, hey, we've got to give you a five-round fight against somebody who's got a good level of experience. And if Allen can go out there, maybe it would be more impressive if he did get a rear naked choke in like the fourth round or the fifth round, right? Goes out there, really establishes the kicks and his range. Breaks down Paul Craig as the fight continues. I'd be really impressed if we saw that. And I think he's going to get the Win. Paul Craig, first main event in years and years. First five-round fight. Both of us going with all in. Brandon Allen to get the win. And we really do want to hear from you guys. I mean, you're so active out there in the comments section. There's about a month left right now. UFC 296 being the departure point. The indefinite hiatus. You never want to close. I mean, I'm reading Crucible. You never want to close a giant book. But sometimes it is like time. like LeBron James on the first page of every book. To close that book. And uh, yeah, so... Listen, it could be like GNR. We show back up in 10 years, but don't expect us back early in 2024 whatsoever, Matt. It's been a wild ride. You had the undefeated run last week at UFC 295. We've both been hitting the last Have few been. weeks. We've been really hitting it hard. So we got another four cards to get you ready for. You tweeted it out right before the main event. Don't look now, but Matt could have it. And I thought for sure Yuri was going to win by like 360 knockout after that, but no. luckily it was intact. I will say this though, coming up for this weekend, I'm going away on Thursday and I'm away all weekend i'm away pretty much all week as well so if there are any change-ups i'll do my best to try and cover them and we'll throw some videos out there but i didn't mention question marks at the start of the week and i'm mentioning it right now there's there's not going to be a question mark kicks this week so you're going to tune in for this full card video right here and maybe we can try and do something on instagram i guess yeah. we can hook up and do an instagram live on saturday but i am away all weekend for sure and uh yeah so make sure you find us on our socials at craig allen fmp at matt allen fmp twitter it was formerly known as that it's x and instagram you can also find us at fighting a picks if we are to do a video there on saturday trying to get back to you guys and get that content out there. Some big fights. 14 total on this one. Toss a like on your way out. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it.